This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Remember, smart people listen to this show. Other people change the channel. We are just a few hours removed. Actually, uh, depending on where you are in the country and when polls closed, we are just uh, a handful of hours removed from Election Day 2023. Very much and non-event. There were some important races. I don't want to downplay anybody that won or lost, got elected or didn't get elected yesterday, any ballot measures that passed or didn't pass. But I think really this is kind of the calm before the storm. If I'm sitting here, and I hope to be, a year from now, when we're doing the 2024 election, I think you are going to see a whole different attitude on the part of everybody involved. But there are a co- I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, uh, one, because everybody else has been spending a lot of time on it, and two, because there's uh, a lot of other interesting things to talk about. But there are a few other there, – there are a few themes – that I think are key takeaways as to uh, this election. And I want to go through a few of these themes in uh, a few of the states that had elections yesterday. And really, unlike five years ago, 10 years ago, where Election Day was Election Day, you really can't even call Election Day Election Day anymore because there's so much early voting. And I like voting early. I'm an early voter. But you, it's really the final day of voting. I think that's the proper way to refer to it because a lot of people end up voting beforehand. Well, let me tell you first what I was surprised by. Coming out of the, uh, my backyard in the state of New Jersey, I must tell you, I was very surprised at the underwhelming performance of the um, New Jersey Republican Party. I was predicting that I thought there was a very good chance that New Jersey had the opportunity to go uh, have the for the first time in a long time, see one or both houses of the state legislature turn Republican for the first time in a while. That didn't happen. And uh, I thought that was a major uh, I mean, look, I didn't I knew it was a long shot that the Republicans would win one or both houses, but I definitely thought that they would pick up some seats. Not only did they not pick up seats, in spite of the fact that they had a much more favorable state legislative map that uh, than they've had previously, but they actually appear to have lost a couple of seats, which I would not have seen 
coming. And uh, obviously the, the race that I think is getting the most attention is the race involving Ed Durr losing. He was that truck driver that beat Steve Sweeney. I uh, Oh, sorry. You know, I sent, uh, I sent Christian in to find my phone and it was here this whole time. I apologize, Christian. Sorry about that. Um, and so Richard Durr, uh, you know, uh, Ed Durr ended up losing. This was the guy that kind of came out of nowhere, this truck driver from a couple of years ago. Now, why? I think this is one of the fundamental lessons in this election cycle and any election cycle, which is that campaigns matter and the kind of campaign you run matters. And the state, because I would have thought after the incredible job that Jack Chitterelli did running for governor two years ago, that the Republicans would have put up some big gains this time around. They did not do that in the state of New Jersey. And it really comes down to, and I've been talking with a lot of New Jersey political insiders about this, Republican, Democrat, and nonpolitical, or I mean uh, nonpartisan. It really comes down to, on the GOP part in New Jersey, a bad field operation and an absolutely abysmal vote-by-mail operation. And the Democrats have have a huge advantage there. And the state party, the state GOP in New Jersey, was largely abandoned a couple of years ago in order to feed Chris Christie's ambitions as governor. It became basically a puppet of Chris Christie doing whatever it was that he wanted, and it shows. And now the Republicans in New Jersey are paying the piper for essentially becoming a cult of personality. So what did they do last year that they thought was going to turn things around? They appointed a new state Republican chairman in New Jersey. Why did they do that? Well, uh, as best I can tell, the sole qualification that Bob Hugan had and the reason they picked him to be the state Republican chairman is because he's got a lot of money. And they thought he would be able to contribute a lot of money and to raise a lot of money. I was listening to some of the interviews that Bob Hugan was doing on radio and elsewhere in advance of the election. The guy was clueless. Honestly, I don't even live in the state of New Jersey, and I could tell that what he was saying was just totally nonsense. So I think the Republicans in New Jersey kind of need a come-to-Jesus moment because everything was trending in their direction. The crime issue was trending in their direction. The issue of offshore wind and the whale deaths was trending in their direction. Everything that's going on on the school board level, the fact that nobody can afford to live in the state of New Jersey – This would have been a layup election for them, especially given the inroads that um, Jack Cittarelli made. But you know what I've noticed when it comes to politics? A lot of times they'll turn to someone like Bob Hugan, who's made a lot of money in a field unrelated to politics, and they'll say, oh, well, he must know what he's talking about. It. He's run for office before. He's interested in politics. He's got a lot of money. Let's put him in charge. He must know what he's doing. And the fact is, a lot of times these guys that are really wealthy, they just don't. They think they do, but they don't. It reminds me a lot of uh, – you ever watch The Simpsons? I- I'm kicking myself that I didn't get to see The uh, Simpsons Treehouse of Horror last weekend, but I needed to take uh, a little bit of a nap and whatever. That's when the half hour of napping took place. Or I might have been somewhere. I don't remember. But the there was an episode of The Simpsons, and this is going back 25 years, maybe 30 years, 
where the uh, the they try to get a a, ring, a bunch of ringers on the nuclear power plant softball team, and they get all these major leaguers: Don Mattingly, Roger Clemens, Steve Sachs, and uh, Daryl Strawberry. And something happens to all of them, except Daryl Strawberry. Daryl Strawberry is the last major leaguer that's still available as a ringer. And he's in the game for the Springfield Power Plant, and he's doing great. He hits home run after home run. And then Mr. Burns, who's the manager of the team, who's not a baseball professional, who is very wealthy, but not wealthy for anything having to do with baseball, he decides to take Daryl Strawberry out of the game. Why? Wait, you, Strawberry. Good effort today. Take a lap and hit the showers. I'm putting in a right-handed batter to hit for you. What? You're pitch hitting for me? Yes. You see, you're a left-hander and so is the pitcher. If I send up a right-handed batter, it's called playing the percentages. It's what smart managers do to win ball games. But I've got nine home runs today. <laughs> you should be very proud of yourself. Sit down, Simpson. You're batting for strawberry. I am? Woohoo! Hello, boy, Homer. You can do it. <laughs> So basically, Mr. Burns understands that in a baseball textbook, you shouldn't have a left-handed batter going against a left-handed pitcher. But when that left-hand batter is Daryl Strawberry and the right-handed batter is Homer Simpson, of course you could keep Daryl Strawberry in. But Mr. Burns doesn't know baseball. He just knows, in theory, what is going to work. And I think that's kind of where the New Jersey Republicans are with, uh, with Bob Hugan. Let me share with you something that happened out of Pennsylvania. Some of you listening in Pennsylvania may be hip to this. And if you want to comment and you want to share your thoughts on um, where we are with respect to the elections, you can do so. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is an email, and I'm not going to give this person's name, but it's a listener. He emailed me at at 5 p.m. Eastern yesterday. This is what he said. Hey, Frank, just voted in Pennsylvania. Some interesting stuff going on. Now, when I get an email like this, already my eyes start to roll. Oh, yeah, interesting stuff. I hear this every election. Uh, wh- what happened? Did uh, You couldn't find the candidate that you were going to vote for. They didn't have a pencil for you to write in somebody. Did you make a mistake and they wouldn't let you vote again? A lot of times people say interesting stuff's going on. A lot of times, you know, my sister-in-law, for instance, she voted in a local election for the first time. She said, I couldn't believe they didn't ask me for ID. Well, I said, Deborah. They're not allowed to ask you for ID. They don't ask for ID in the state of New Jersey. But if you're not familiar with the voting process, a lot of this stuff comes across as weird. Lo and behold, this is what this gentleman writes me. I just voted. There's a glitch anomaly going on in Northampton County that the county is supposedly aware of. But given our national conversation around election integrity, I thought it was important to share with you all. When you vote yes or no on the judges, your review ticket, they give you basically a receipt, your review ticket will show the opposite of what you voted. So if you voted no to retain the judge, it will show yes on your review ticket. The poll worker said the county is aware of the glitch and that our vote will be recorded as we chose on the screen. But again... Given our current political climate around election integrity, a glitch this bad is a big deal. And I do not have confidence that my vote was recorded correctly. And I have to tell you, 
I was floored by that. So I did a little research error, and sure enough, a little research on this, sure enough, this has been widely reported. And a coding error in voting machines in Northampton County, Pennsylvania, has caused votes to be flipped on a ballot question. The error caused by a coding mistake by election systems and software only affected the judicial retention question and was isolated to this one county, Northampton County. The county obtained a court order to continue using the machines and will correct the votes so that they reflect the voters' intention. Now, they're saying the glitch was considered relatively minor. Excuse me? You think that's relatively minor? Where somebody somebody votes yes and their vote is recorded as no and vice versa? I think that is ridiculous. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. So that's um, out of Pennsylvania. A couple of other interesting results. In Ohio, uh, voters have voted to retain abortion rights. And uh, this ought to be a warning sign for the Republicans because Ohio has gone from being a purple state to being a red state, a solidly red state that Trump did very well in in the last two elections. And all indications were not only was Trump uh, planning to bank on Ohio in 2024, but their incumbent senator, Democrat Sherrod Brown, who's running for reelection, was considered one of the most vulnerable Senate incumbents in the whole country along with uh, Joe Manchin in West Virginia and uh, Kirsten Sinema, even though she's an independent, in Arizona. So anyway, uh, they voted to retain abortion rights. This ought to be a wake-up call to the Republicans in a big way. I really think, you know, Donald Trump is in no danger at all of losing the Republican nomination no matter what his position is on abortion. Donald Trump has shown a lot of flexibility on the issue of abortion. I really think it would behoove both Trump and the Republicans to say that come out unequivocally and say, I am opposed to a national ban on abortion. Because then both he and whoever, whichever Republican ends up as the U.S. Senate nominee next year, and apparently there is a fellow by the name of Moreno that's considered one of the front runners. But um, that issue is taken off the table if he says, I am uh, coming, I am uh, opposed to the idea of a national abortion ban, and it would be unwise. I don't think it would hurt him in the GOP primary. So far, whatever he said about abortion hasn't seemed to hurt him in the GOP primary. And I think he should say that. And I think that would be avoiding a potential landmine, not only for him, but for the rest of the ticket in Ohio next year. Then, have you been following what has gone on in Bridgeport, Connecticut? Obviously, you knew I was going to talk about it because it gives me an opportunity to say Connecticut. And uh, then we'll take your calls at 800-848-9222. On November 1st, a Connecticut state trial judge ruled that the results of the September Democratic primary for mayor of Bridgeport should be set aside and a new primary held. Connecticut city elections are partisan. The incumbent mayor, Joe Ganim, who has kind of a colorful history in his own right, And if that name rings a bell to you, 
It's not because I'm ringing a bell. It's because, yes, it's that Joe Ganim that actually went to prison previously. So Joe Ganim won the September primary by 251 votes. But the challenger, John Gomez, won the primary if absentee ballots are set aside. So Ganim won because of the absentees. So video cameras showed that some individuals dropped dozens of absentee ballots into the city's drop boxes for absentee ballots. Yet state law in Connecticut doesn't permit anyone except the voter to deposit an absentee ballot into a drop box with a few limited exceptions. For example, a disabled voter you know, can choose a family member to deposit the ballot, but only very limited. So the general election proceeded yesterday. The primary, because they're throwing out the results of this primary election, the primary is going to be held afterwards, after the general election, on a date not yet set. So what they were going to do, presumably, if Ganim, the mayor, the incumbent, was elected yesterday, and if the primary held um, afterwards is also won by Ganim, then he'd be considered reelected. But if the general election was won by Ganim, and Ganim loses the Democratic primary held afterwards, then a new general election is going to need to be held. So what happened? Well, in Connecticut, in Bridgeport, Mayor Joe Ganim squeaked out a very narrow victory. And now he is going to have to face the uh, Gomez in a Democratic primary at a date in the future. So this is I don't know. And I've been following politics a long time. I don't know of another case like this in electoral history where someone wins a general election and then they have to contest the primary election that they supposedly already just won a um, you know a month or two later we'll see when this ends up taking place the other uh, the other interesting race that i thought was worth taking a look at was uh, the commonwealth of kentucky where the democrat governor andy bashir was reelected i think there's a couple of key takeaways for this election one i don't think there's any danger that kentucky is going to go from red to blue anytime soon but i think this shows similar to the example in in new jersey that candidates matter and if you get Democrats running for office that know how to talk to rural voters and that come across as genuine, honest and competent. And you have Republican candidates that are perceived of as being too extreme, then Democrats can win. And I hope because I think every election should be competitive. I think it's such a shame when you go to vote and you see uh, that uh, one party doesn't even bother contesting a whole bunch of offices. If it's a Democrat district, a lot of times the Republicans don't pick up a, uh, put up a candidate. If it's a Republican district, a lot of times the Democrats don't even bother putting up a candidate. I think that's a shame. I think uh, the people that really lose out in an equation like that are the, uh, are the voters. So uh, my hope is that this Andy Bashir re-election in Kentucky inspires other Democrats in in um, red states to run smart campaigns and run campaigns that don't treat rural voters who might be gun owners, who might be Christian, who might believe in culturally a lot of things that are traditionally associated with the Republicans to not treat these people like aliens. So I thought um, I thought that was interesting. And I hope a lot of people take note of that election, that candidates matter. In Virginia, 
I think it's a combination of a bunch of things. But uh, in Virginia, they were talking about the Republicans potentially picking up the uh, state, both houses of the state legislature there because of Glenn Youngkin's popularity. That didn't happen. I don't know that there's necessarily a big takeaway there beyond the ones that we've already mentioned because uh, Virginia has been trending blue. I think Glenn Youngkin in his victory two years ago was more the exception. And I know that uh, they Youngkin was trying to parlay his popularity and his coattails to help a lot of Republicans running for the House of Delegates and the uh, state Senate in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Didn't work out that way. And it uh, looks like the Democrats might have picked up a seat or two. I don't think anybody, assuming it's a Trump versus Biden rematch, I don't think many people, unless Youngkin's the Republican nominee, but uh, if it's a Trump-Biden rematch, I don't think many people put Virginia in the uh, possibility of being a red state again anytime soon. So I thought that was uh, I thought that was interesting. And then in New York, there were some interesting uh, results. Uh, Long Island is now solidly red, both Nassau and Suffolk, for the first time in about a decade. There is once again a Republican county executive in Suffolk, and he's going to have a Suffolk a Republican legislature in Suffolk. So they'll get a chance to show what Republicans can do with a uh, county legislature that's Republican and a and a Republican county executive. So we'll see where that goes. All right, comments, questions, thoughts. Let me hear from you. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. If you have thoughts related to any of the elections we've talked about in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Connecticut, Kentucky, Virginia, or even in New York. But I'm so interested in that Pennsylvania situation where people saw their votes switch in the opposite direction of that they're voted. And it goes to show you, and I'm not an alarmist, It goes to show you how vulnerable our ballots are when our whole votes can just be switched around because of a coding error. And the election, the answer from the election officials is, oh, well, we'll fix it when we can. Trust us. Excuse me. No. Um, That's one of the reasons I like what New York does and some other places where you have a paper ballot and you see it fed into the optical scanner as well. But uh, I'm a big believer in paper ballots. I like paper. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
Uh, this is a birthday bumper music selection from my friend Richard Luthman. Uh, Richard Luthman, you might remember, uh, was one of the most notorious attorneys in New York. He represented me on uh, a couple of election law matters. And uh, a great guy, uh, somebody that I became friendly with around 2015, 2016. A colorful guy, a character, but you know, I like characters. And then, of course, like anybody that I end up associating with, what happens? He ends up going to prison. So uh, you're listening to the one person on the radio who had a lawyer that ended up going to prison. There you have it. He's out of prison now. He's been a guest on this show a couple times. He writes a very funny uh, column called This is Satire. But uh, and if you know his whole, the history of his whole legal case, you can. it's interesting. You could follow it. Maybe we'll have him back. You know, I'd like to have him on more. But he sends out these emails slamming all of the all of my friends and people that have prosecutorial power over me. So you know how I get nervous about uh, the ability of DAs and other prosecutors to indict people. You know, if I start having on this fella every week, <laughs> that's uh, slamming a DA that has domain over me. All of a sudden, I, I might be getting investigated a little bit more closely than I'd like to be investigated. And I, the people that I'm friends with that he's constantly slamming, I, um, I'm i sure they would just love that I'm giving him a platform to uh, talk about that stuff. But the fact of the matter is, I think he is somebody that got a raw deal. I'm glad he's free. I'm glad he's doing well. And uh, it is his birthday today. And this was one of his birthday bumper music selections. Now, for the rest of you, if you have ever dreamt of either wealth or fame, listen to me very closely. I have three words for you. When used in the manner that I am going to use them, these words will be your ticket to fame, fortune, and changing the face of the country, maybe even the face of the world. This is not an exaggeration. Uh, You're welcome. I'm going to say you're welcome in advance. Three words for you. Halloween candy casserole. Okay? How many of you, especially those of you with children, but even those of you without children, how many of you have all of this leftover Halloween candy that you don't know what to do with? You don't want lying around the house. You don't know what to do with. What if there was a recipe to take all this leftover Halloween candy and bake it into kind of a a, maybe it's a dessert Maybe it's an appetizer. Maybe it's a main course. A Halloween candy casserole. 
I suggested this to my friend Jessica, who's a very accomplished baker, in the hopes that she would do something with it. So far, I don't get the sense that she's that enthusiastic. Then I reached out to my friend, celebrity chef David Burke. I figure the guy's got 25 restaurants, all high-end. He's very famous as a, as a chef. If he had puts the Halloween candy casserole on all his menus and puts it in one of his cookbooks, he can make a big splash with this. <laughs> But I didn't hear anything. I didn't hear anything from him on it. So because Jessica, my friend Jessica, passed on it, or at least didn't show interest, because David Burke passed on it, or at least didn't show interest, this is yours. You need to take ownership of this Halloween candy casserole and make this your gift to the world. Publish it. Get your recipe down right. Publish it in a cookbook. Trademark it. You will be famous. You will be wealthy. Everybody will be saying your name for the weeks after Halloween, the weeks between Halloween and Thanksgiving for decades on end. You'll be more famous than um, Mrs. Carbonara, who invented pasta carbonara, or Aunt Jemima, who I think invented uh, maple syrup. I have used artificial intelligence to conjure up some pictures of what a Halloween candy casserole might look like. I have just shared those photographs of this Halloween candy casserole at facebook.com slash moranofan. I have to tell you, it looks pretty good. Additionally, I've used another artificial intelligence software to come up with a potential recipe for Halloween candy casserole. I have published that on my Facebook page as well. Feel free to take a look. Let me know what you think. More important, though, make a Halloween candy casserole. You are solving so many problems in one foul swoop. What do you do with all those leftover, that leftover Halloween candy? Well, here you go. You uh, make a Halloween candy casserole. What do you bring to the um, you know election night party? Well, who knows? It's too early for turkey, and nobody wants more pumpkin pie this early. It's too late for, um, you know, uh, I don't know, something else. The Halloween candy casserole. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Stephen is on Long Island. Hello, Stephen. Hey, uh, hey Frank. How are you? Um, you were talking earlier about the uh, Kentucky gubernatorial uh, results. Right. And uh, from watching the news tonight, uh, what I found out is that the there was a large turnout in the coal miner community in Kentucky. And I'm not even comfortable saying this, but uh, hopefully uh, uh, you uh, look at, you know, consider my uh, thoughts here. I think the coal miner community, and I'll put it in a subtle way, uh, they would not be comfortable with, and I, I don't want to make this sound like a stereotype, but I don't think they would be comfortable with an African-American governor. Interesting. So, so you're... I'm, kind of, I'm, I'm you, kind of making the implication that I think that the... The coal miners are racist, you're saying? And not that they're racist. Uh, they're just not... They wouldn't be comfortable with an African-American governor... And, uh, you know, since Kentucky is such, from what I'm, I'm hearing, is such a red state, uh, I'm wondering if there was any 
uh, relationship to the turnout in the coal miner community with the results in the election. And I don't mean to, I don't want to call them racist. Yeah, but I, I understand what you're saying. I, I understand what I'm you're saying. Um, there's, yeah. There's something. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. I, I, I think it's, look, I, can I say that your hunch is is wrong? Uh, no. My my belief is it's more reflection of Andy Bashir treating conservative-minded voters, voters with conservative values, as if they're human beings. He's not telling all these coal miners that their job that their jobs are going away and that if they want to keep a job, they should get retrained in uh, building a windmill somewhere or something along those lines. He's treating these people with respect. And um, I don't see this changing anytime soon on the presidential level. But Andy Bashir, I think, has provided a roadmap for how Democrats can win in red states around the country. Here's a little bit of uh, Andy Bashir's re-election speech last And tonight, the people of Kentucky elected me as just the third two-consecutive-term governor in our history. My folks, this wasn't my win. This was our victory. It was a victory that sends a loud, clear message. A message that candidates should run for something and not against someone. That a candidate should show vision and not sow division. And a clear statement that anger politics should end right here and right now. So uh, not to repeat what I said again, but I know um, that's what you say right before you repeat what you said again. I think uh, this is what Democrats need to be doing around the country. If they want to be competitive in red states and in purple states, I think he's provided a roadmap. And, you know, the other person that uh, emulated that to some extent was uh, Brandon Presley, Elvis's cousin. And he is Elvis's cousin. I'm not joking. He was the Democrat that was running for governor in Mississippi, and uh, he was running against the incumbent Republican there, who's one of the least popular Republicans in the whole country. Uh, Tate Reeves is the incumbent governor there. But Brandon Presley actually came very close to winning this election, and he really kind of used that same playbook as Andy Bashir is uh, he treated voters that are culturally conservative, gun owners, People that read the Bible, people that go to church, people that don't want to see um, gender eliminated from uh, their driver's license and uh, don't want to be sent to prison or lose their job for telling a Polish joke. He treated these people like they were human beings. I think that's the key takeaway that Democrats should learn from this election is that conservative minded people are humans, not aliens. And I think that uh, the lesson for Republicans from Ohio is that uh, in purple states and even red states, the abortion issue is not a net winner. Even Hannity, I saw, I wasn't watching Hannity, but I saw a clip that someone shared. Even Hannity said, in words or substance, I consider myself pro-life. 
But I recognize that's not where the majority of the country is on that. Even Hannity seemed to be signaling for the Republicans to moderate on on some of those social issues next year. So if you want to see a photo of what this Halloween candy casserole might look like, you can go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan. Uh, That's facebook.com slash Morano fan. If um, you still have not yet listened to my latest edition of the Racket Report, you're going to want to do so. I did a really interesting interview with Gerald McMahon, a guy who has gotten acquittal after acquittal for mobsters and purported mobsters. And we get into full scale analysis of the criminal justice system. You know, one mistake that I made and because it's a podcast, we actually uh, could have edited out. But I kind of treat it just like it's a live radio show. But I remember Gerald McMahon representing Vincent Asaro. Vincent Asaro just passed away. He uh, was charged with the Lufthansa heist 30 years after it happened. That was depicted in the film Goodfellas. And I actually thought he represented Vincent Asaro at trial. Well, I was wrong about that. And he corrected me because Asaro was uh, famously acquitted at trial. And I thought this was one of Gerald McMahon's acquittals. And uh, McMahon explained why he didn't end up representing Vincent Asaro at trial. And Mr. Asaro got arrested or uh, shortly before he was arrested. I had a meeting with one of my other clients who told me that I'm getting a call from uh, Mr. Asaro. But this other client told me to Jerry, the guy's a bit of a deadbeat. Make sure you get your money up front. So when I got a call from Mr. Asaro when he got arrested, I represented him at the arraignment. and It was a crush of publicity like I've never seen. But then we sat down afterwards to the business of, you know, attorney clients and uh, what are we doing here, pro bono or, or not. So unfortunately, Mr. Asaro was not in a position or unwilling to uh, give me the money that I thought it would uh, would cost to represent him at a trial. So I ended up not doing a trial. I begged out of it. And a couple of my brother counsel, uh, Diane Ferroni and uh, Elizabeth Macedonio, ended up doing the trial. So there you have it. It was a lot of interesting stories, but uh, I think that was very textbook defense attorney. Make sure you get the fee first and then see what happens. All right. Uh, If you have comments, questions, thoughts, 800-848-9222. If you want to listen to that podcast, you can go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com. That's redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Or you can go to uh, any podcast app, iTunes, uh, Spotify, really wherever you get your podcast and just search the um, just search the racket report and hit the subscribe button. You could listen not, not only that interview, but all the interviews that we've done with a lot of colorful people on that. All right. 800-848-9222. Steve is in Manhattan. Hi, Steve. All right. Try to get the uh, dentist association behind that casserole. First of all, I just want to clear something up. It's not unusual for Democrats to win the governorship in Kentucky. They they win it most of the time. You know, you just someone's just cherry well, picking one little when, thing. Well, when was the last time a Democrat governor was reelected in Kentucky? I, I well, from what the guy said in his acceptance speech, there, it, not too many people get reelected in that state. You know, yeah. so so but, how, how far do you think you would have to go back to have a uh, a Democrat a Democrat governor? I don't think you have to go back too far. They've had Democrat governors. 
Um, on the national level, the Kentucky goes uh, Republican right, president, right. but not because these guys yeah. down there, he's not a typical, he doesn't sound like a Democrat you'd see like on the city well, council well, that, of New York well, City. Well, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. That is how Democrats can be competitive in um, in blue and purple states. It's by emulating Andy Bashir. But he'd have problems. He would have problems in the primary, and they would have problems where, even if they try to push him through. He'd have problems with a lot of voters around this country. Well, I, I know, but I mean, never- I, yeah, but that's exactly what I'm saying. Is I'm saying if the and, and again, I'm not sure why this is a difficult uh, point for you to comprehend, Steve. But I'm saying if the Democrats want to win, oh, you're kidding! But if the Democrats want to start winning in a general election. In states where they're typically losing, they're going to have to talk like Andy Bashir and Joe Manchin and start voting like those guys, not like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Bernie Sanders. But that does, that does not happen. If you look at we've been told that Asians, black Americans, Hispanic Americans are going to start voting Republican. If you look at the, the results and the exit polls of tonight's election, that is not even happening. They're trying to force that down people's throats. I know Bill Clinton did it. He ran as a, like a moderate Democrat. He grabbed Gore was from the South. I know that whole strategy. But today, the stakes are even higher because the, the people who are running the Democratic Party are hard left people. That's an anomaly down in the South. Well, agreed, agreed. And, that, and that's what that's what I'm – and again, thank you, Steve. I can see we're going in circles. If um, Democrats want to win in the South, that's what they're going to have to do. Zell Miller wrote a book about this. He's uh, no longer with us, but he was a senator from Georgia long after Georgia had become a uh, red state. And the name of his book – and this is almost uh, 20 years ago – The name of his book was A National Party No More, because really the Democrats have ceased to be competitive nationally. They're very competitive in blue states, and a lot of the blue states have gotten bluer. But uh, as far as being competitive in red states, with very few exceptions, they're not. They're not. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222, We'll continue with your calls, your comments, your questions, your thoughts in just a minute. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at midnight with Frank Morano. Think of this. This is Harry Hepcat and the Boogie Woogie Band. It's a, a song that I think we're playing for the first time on the radio anywhere. I think this is the debut of this song. It's called Nighttime 
radio. I'm kind of into it. Let's hear it. Airwaves filled with all mankind. Nighttime. Nighttime radio. Nighttime radio by Harry Heptat and the Boogie Woogie Band. I don't believe this is available on iTunes, but it is available for... Uh, it is available on uh, the YouTube, so there is that. All right, a lot of folks have been uh, kind enough to reach out regarding our cat, Bathsheba. She had another chemotherapy session yesterday. You know, it's um, it's very interesting because my wife has to not stay with the cat. She has to wait in the waiting room, which works out just as well because she's got a lot of work to do and the process can be can be kind of lengthy. So she drops the cat off with the chemotherapist or the doctor. And uh, then she picks the cat up after, you know, after they're done. And unfortunately, Beth Sheba, who's our favorite cat, everybody's favorite cat, has lost more weight. She's now lost another half a pound, which is not a great sign. She's not eating much, even with us giving her this appetite stimulant. And uh, she is uh, still having a problem with her anemia. The one positive from the doctor's perspective is that she's not detecting any thickening of the um, the walls of her stomach or anything along those lines, which they say is a, a positive And uh, that would be a bad sign if there was thickening of her her anything. So. We'll see. Hoping for the best. And I just feel bad for Beth Sheba that she's got to go through this every week. I think she's got maybe another week of this. And then she gets to switch instead of to weekly chemotherapy to every other week for a while. But she's a trooper. And uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. So thanks for everybody that's been asking after her. You know, and again, I've said this a thousand times. Thank God that we have pet insurance for her because the pet insurance covers... 90% of our bill. But two things have happened. Now, Bathsheba is grandfathered in because, you know, we've been paying the premiums for a while. But the pet insurance company that we use is no longer offering this kind of plan. The new, uh, because I guess it was costing them too much money. Now, they're making it so that it's not going to cover 90% of the bill. And there's more and more things that are not included by the insurance. It's not going to include wellness visits. Again, our cats are still included, but for any future cats that we might get, it's not going to include wellness visits or anything like that. And the other thing that we noticed is the bill is ticking upwards. Now, it used to be that the bill for these chemotherapy sessions was between $900 and $1,100. Now, that's a week, a week. That's a lot of money. And even though insurance is covering 90% of it, that's still 100 bucks a week. Last couple of weeks, this bill has ticked up to $1,300, $1,400. Of course, my wife never gets to see the doctor, so it's very difficult to go over this itemized bill with the doctor. But um, it's not really clear to my wife, who scrutinizes this stuff pretty closely, why that bill is ticking up. But it does get to be pretty expensive. All right, 800 848 Nine two two two. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Let me say hello to uh, David in Ohio. Hello, David. Yes, love your program as usual. Thank uh, you. A couple, couple of comments. Uh, uh, I love that Warren Zevon song, "Lawyers Wonderful. and Guns and Money." Great, but, great to hear that. But it's the next sentence that means everything. 
than lawyers, guns, and money. Dad, get me out of this. <laughs> yeah, okay, you're Ohio, right. So, <laughs> Ohio issue one and two. I'm a staunch Republican conservative, but of course, um, I went against the grain and I voted yes on one and two on the uh, abortion rights thing and the marijuana thing. It's because I have a 17 year old son. I want him to have options that are open in the future. Sure. Uh, Halloween, Halloween casserole. Wait, why not uh, throw it all into a sponge cake? Well, hell, that'd be nice. Well, David, you, you're rewriting the the equation here. I mean, we've got uh, we've got a winning combination. We've got a winning idea with this Halloween candy casserole. I mean, I mean, uh, let's let's keep everybody focused on perfecting the Halloween candy casserole first before yeah, throwing the curveball at the with the sponge cake. Yeah, I'm sorry about that curveball because. I'm a big baseball guy. I'm sorry. I haven't even looked at your recipe yet, so my fault. Final thing, your cat. Um, that's a bummer. I've got started with the one, went to four, down to two. The cancer thing is a bummer. But, you know, maybe try, ask your doctor, catnip. Boy, does that work miracles on my cats when they're down. Give them a little bit of catnip, they become alive. Well, I'll be honest with you, David, and thank you for the call, and I appreciate the perspective. I, uh, she's not in bad spirits. She's in very good spirits. She still wants to be petted, not just by us, but by everybody. She's still very patient with Carmine. She still jumps up onto the uh, dining room table whenever we're having dinner. She's just not eating as much. And, um, she is still going to her food enthusiastically, but she just takes a couple of bites and she's done. And, uh, she's still very, very friendly and very affectionate. But um, she just doesn't seem as into it. All right. Do you remember the interview that we did with Jack Cashel a couple of weeks ago? We were talking about we we spent a lot of time talking about TWA Flight 800. And on the one hand, I was glad that we spoke about it because it was an interesting subject. But on the other hand, I was regretful because it kind of distracted me, distracted us from the two issues that I was hoping to talk with him about, which is the premise of his book that white flight, meaning uh, all these white people leaving cities because they were racist, wasn't actually accurate. And the uh, George Floyd case where he believes that George Floyd was not murdered. So we're going to invite him back for a full hour, and if you want to challenge him on any of that or have questions, you can call us at 800-848-9222. We'll get into it next hour. Help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
I can't remember a guest that engendered more reaction, more feedback, more curiosity, more fervent debate than Jack Cashill. Now, if you want to talk about a subject that is um, really polarizing in some quarters, then bring up the issue of TWA Flight 800. Well, Jack is something of an expert on that. Then you want to talk about something that generates heat, if not necessarily light, whenever it's brought up. Let's talk about the issue of race. And then you want to put the cherry on top of a polarizing, controversial discussion. Then let's talk specifically about George Floyd. Well, the last time that uh, Jack Cashel, who is an author, a blogger, an editor, written dozens of books, he's uh, collaborated on a dozen more, a Ph.D. from Purdue University. The last time he was on the show, we tried to do the impossible and tackle all three of those issues in a relatively short amount of time. So we had to have him back. Uh, I don't know that we need to revisit the TWA discussion again, but uh, there is certainly still a lot to explore on the issue of race, especially white flight and the George Floyd incident specifically. Jack, welcome back to the program. Thanks again for staying up late with us. Yeah, Frank, uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, you know, what's interesting about my uh, career uh, is that uh, until um, the Internet emerged, I really wasn't an investigative reporter because I just didn't have the resources. What were you, by the way, Jack, before that? I was working uh, largely in advertising. then. Hmm. Although I have a PhD in American studies, but what I found out quickly is that uh, white males are not the top of the hiring hierarchy, and I just didn't want to work in an institution or a system that was going to discriminate against me entire my entire career. So I, I just switched to something where meritocracy was still prevalent, and that was advertising, actually. And so I was writing and producing and uh, doing doc, – doing, uh, and then with the Internet emerged and the information became available, I was able to switch to making documentaries – and writing books, um, and the, what I discovered quickly is that the media, uh, the major media, left all the big stories on the table because they were too sensitive, and that included virtually any story that had anything to do with race. And thus, uh, you know, when I, I did my most recent book, was out now, is uh, Untenable, The True Story of White Flight uh, from America's Cities, I realized that uh, this is a subject that for 60 years had been subjected to one lie after another and the demonization for 60 years of the people who were the victims of white flight, not the, not the perpetrators. Uh, so it was a kind of a fertile field. And, and when I started talking to people, I realized, and this is amazing, Frank, when you think about it, is that. For 60 years, for all the literature that's been written about white flight, all the, you know, the common denominators about white flight, no one of consequence bothered to talk to the people who were involved. And no one bothered to ask them 
why they left. Right? Well, I want to. I want to. Pres- uh, let yeah. me let me back up, Jack. I want to get to white flight in a moment and continue the discussion that we had. But I want to follow up on something that you said just a few minutes ago, and it's it's something that I think a lot of white males in various competitive fields can relate to. You talked about your experience being, and uh, I don't know that you used the word, but I'll use it. You talked about your experience being sort of discriminated against from an employment perspective. And I think a lot of people, I've known many people in various different fields that feel like they've been in the same boat. Now, a lot of the writing that you've done whether it's untenable, which we're going to talk about in a minute, or the George Floyd case, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes, it seems to kind of defend what was what would be the position of white people. And there are going to be some people in the audience that say, well, look, clearly Jack resents the fact that he was discriminated against, and now he's cherry-picking data, he's cherry-picking certain analyses to use this as an opportunity to get back at the um, the forces racially, culturally, politically that discriminated against him. Anticipating that question, Jack, how would you respond to that? Well, you know, it's uh, I, I've always considered myself something of a realist. And, you know, I'll just give you a, a, how definitive this circumstance was. You know, when I was getting my Ph.D., so was my wife. Fortunately, I was married to a woman, you know, which was great, because uh, if I was married to a guy, I'd have been doubly screwed at the time. <laughs> uh, but, I went, we, you know, I was uh, staying with my mother uh, at a housing project in Newark, New Jersey. So... In terms of all the, uh, the the metrics that might qualify you as first to go to college, you know, uh, my mother didn't go to high school, you know, uh, poor working class, widow, et cetera. I took a bus into New York to go to a hiring convention, and I escorted my wife to a – because she had lots of interviews at this hiring convention on, the, you know, like an upper floor of a Manhattan hotel. And then on the going down, I got on an elevator with a black guy – and a white uh, woman. And they were talking about how many job interviews they had lined up. She had eight. He had 14. All the males in my department collectively had zero, including me. I had none. And it was by the time I hit the lobby, I realized I had to find a new profession. Uh, they were openly discriminating against white men 50 years ago in academia. Now it's in the last post-George Floyd it's across the board in corporate America. You know, something like only 6% of the hires of the last two years in corporate America were white men. I mean, it's, you know, it's a crazy stat, but apparently it's true. Uh, so it's not a question of retaliating, because actually I did much better at advertising than I would have done in academia. Oh, well, that's and, fair. Uh, I, don't I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't doubt it. All right. So, Jack, let's uh, remind people of what the basic premise of white flight is. Uh, So you have a situation where a lot of America's uh, cities, even places that are uh, considered heavily minority now, places like Detroit, Rochester, Newark, New Jersey, 
they went right. from being primarily white, uh, Italian immigrants and their descendants, uh, Polish, Irish, Jewish, Russian, to being uh, primarily black. And even sometimes it's not even whole cities, but it's certain neighborhoods that are um, it, within sub- suburbs. Roosevelt, Long Island, for instance. Now, one of the things, before we get to why the white people left, one of the things that gets pointed to as why these cities became more diversified initially is the uh, Fair Housing Act signed by Lyndon Johnson in the late 1960s. Lyndon Johnson talked about what he was hoping to do with fair housing. Fair housing for all, all human beings who live in this country is now a part of the American way of life. It was it was it's been described that that legislation that Johnson signed provided for housing opportunities in some of the cities that I just alluded to. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I think I mean that was a factor, but um you know when I talked about in the in my book were the uh, the white ethnic cities, uh, the ethnic cities in the northeast north central United States. I mean, I grew up in Newark, but when my parents bought a house uh, on our Newark block in 1954, it was already integrated. You know, it was well integrated. Uh, it was probably 10% black at the time. Uh, our next door neighbors were black when we bought. Now, the uh, uh, what moves, uh, what motivated people to leave, though, and I'll give you the standard orthodox uh, take on white flight, and no one did it better than Michelle Obama. And she's much in the news now because they're talking about parachuting her into the convention in 2024. And her view of this is so it's all progressive boilerplate, but with an angry edge that the kind of distinctly angry edge that Michelle brings to any racial topic. So she's just speaking at a forum a couple of years ago, Obama's summit with her brother there is with her, Craig, mild mannered, nice guy who's two years older. And she says, um, to, uh, she's explaining her background. And she said, when respectable families like ours, and she looks at Craig, good, hardworking, respectable families, as soon as we moved into the neighborhood and we moved into our neighborhood, white people just moved out. And she goes, you're all running from us and you're all still running from us. And she said, they, they objected, the white people. And she's speaking to a liberal audience and she's saying, you're all running from us, you're still running. She said, you objected to the color of our skin and the texture of our hair. Well, that story is false in every detail because Michelle Obama herself was engaged in black flight. The reason she ended up in that neighborhood is because she was escaping the neighborhood that she had lived in uh, and the school she had gone to because of the problem. And the problem wasn't skin color or hair texture. The major problem was crime. And the secondary corollary problem was the chaos that comes with crime and what comes with fatherless homes. And that manifests itself in schools. So Michelle Obama, as a, you know, when she first started school, was living in a neighborhood uh, that had a brand new public school. Her neighborhood, when her parents moved in 15 years before that, was good. I mean, it was, uh, you know, a good, solid, middle-class black neighborhood. By the time uh, Michelle was ready for the first grade, which was about 1970, uh, the, they had the housing projects there. The, the kids were, were chaotic. She, 
Craig went to the public school for two years, and Michelle's mother, Marion Robinson, said, no, this won't do. And so she committed a Class C misdemeanor for two years. She drove her children to a school 15 minutes away using her sister's address because she didn't want them to go to the, to the black school. This neighborhood she moved to had been Jewish, but the Jews were fleeing pretty quickly because unlike Catholic, unlike Irish, unlike the Italians, the Jews were totally dependent on public education. Not only that, but they had very high standards of public education. So when those schools started to uh, slip into chaos, they really felt like they had no choice but to leave, especially when they're getting their homes broken into and, you know, uh, all the other things that come with a uh, transitional neighborhood. In the first day of first grade, Michelle goes to this new school, which is now largely, you know, when she started two years prior, it would have been half white. By the time she gets there, it's largely black. Some kid punches her in the face day one, first grader. That doesn't happen in most schools, you know. But she sticks it out through the eighth grade. Uh, but then when it comes to high school, Mrs. Robinson, again, thinking of her children as she should, you know, like any protective parent would do, takes a job so she can send Craig to a Catholic high school, even though they're not Catholic, to pay for the tuition. And then they send Michelle to a, a new magnet school, and at more than an hour from her neighborhood, it was mostly white or Hispanic. So she's been running from black neighborhoods all her life, and then she has the nerve to turn around and stigmatize and insult and scold white people for doing exactly what her family had done. And that's the maddening part of, of white flight. So and, uh, when it comes to the flight of white ethnics from America's cities and people wonder why uh, these white ethnic residents would leave these neighborhoods that they loved and where they met and married their spouses, where they raised their families, where they worked, where they uh, went to the local bar, cheered the local team, went to all the local parks and recreational activities the conventional wisdom basically is that it was due to racism. There was a, a documentary uh, that uh, people can watch on uh, the YouTube. It's uh, it's called How White Flight Really Started. It's a short mini documentary. It's it's put out by a group called Unstripped Voice, and they describe a phenomenon known as blockbusting. It was called blockbusting. Real estate agents preyed on the racial fears of white homeowners to get them to sell their homes quickly for less than market value. The homes were resold to non-whites at inflated prices. One of the women in this... Well, they were... One of the women in this documentary, I believe a white woman, talked about you know her experience in Roosevelt, Long Island, and that's where Howard Stern is from. He's talked about the sure. difficulties uh, being there as well, is what she said. Well, they would say... You know, we're having black people move in. Now, I will give you cash if you want to sell me your house. Do you want to stay with black people next door to you? And that's the way it went on. And uh, as Bunny said, a lot of the people just said, yes, I'll take the money and run. And your contention, Jack, and the the, the the thesis of untenable, the true story of white ethnic flight from America cities, isn't that these people all left because they were racist. They left for the same reason Michelle Obama's family left and Kanye West's family left and a lot of other black families left. They were not happy with crime and they were not happy with the schools. 
Right. And in fact, and just to, you know, I'm sure there were places where blockbusting took place. I read about it, you know, but I, I was, my family, I was among my childhood friends, like in the dozens of us, we were the only ones who were homeowners. Virtually everyone was a renter. They weren't affected by blockbusting. Plus, we went to Catholic schools. I think a lot of the neighborhoods where the blockbusting took place were Jewish because they tended to have a more money and more mobility, but they were also totally dependent on public schools. So, uh, and the Irish and Italian neighborhoods hung on much longer. The Italians were re- resisted. <laughs> they weren't going to, they, I don't know an Italian neighborhood that got blockbusted, but you know, I just, I get the title of my book though, just, I was interviewing the people in my neighborhood who had never been talked to about this before. And, um, I, what I found is that they loved our neighborhood. It was a, you know, an urban working class neighborhood, but it was with, with old mom and pop shots lining the streets, mixed housing, big apartments, small apartments, occasional single family houses, et cetera. And uh, I, I asked one friend who was the last guy on our block, the last of my friends to leave. Uh, and I said, and he's, a, he's, a, he's also the rare Democrat. Most people who left, left the, par- the party of their, their parents, we're all Democrats, and became Republicans when they moved because they saw the forces that were working on them. And they saw that those forces were not their friends. But I asked my friend, I said, why did you and your widowed mother finally leave our block? And so here he's arguing against interest because he knows what he's saying. is isn't going to be popular, especially with his wife, who's pretty woke. Uh, he says, well, Jack, it became untenable. And I said, well, Artie, what do you mean by untenable? What does that word mean? He goes, well, when your mother's mugged for the second time, that's untenable. When your home is invaded for the second time, that's untenable. And that's the story, times a million, the real story, the true story of white ethnic flight from America's cities. And despite that, despite these, this uh, you know, unwanted diaspora, this scattering of people all across, you know, uh, when you live in a city like Newark or even New York City, where the where the close-in real estate is too expensive, um, all the people I knew were scattered to the winds, 50, 60 miles apart, you know, and and these like, you know, slapped together suburbs like down the Jersey Shore, out on Long Island, where uh, or you know, and every city has these uh, kind of makeshift suburbs thrown together to. You know, you have a baby boom population, et cetera. Some people really just wanted to have yards and garages. But it's a story of loss. It's a story of heartbreak. Um, and in a lot of times, including in my own house, we lost, we got, uh, our house was taken by the highway. So we didn't even have a chance mm. to get blockbusted. The whole, like in Newark, for instance, and this happened elsewhere, they leveled literally the whole neighborhood to build housing projects. They just declared it a slum leveled it, sent something like, what was it, 3,000 homo, uh, you know, residents, uh, 3,000 households uh, scattered, disseminated. Those people never were able to regain the kind of neighborhood coherence that they had, you know, in the 40s and 50s and early 60s, gone. And, and yet that wouldn't be bad. That's bad enough. It's as if, you know, the... Uh, the Cherokee and the Creek who were sent on the trail of tears were blamed for leaving, you know, were scolded for leaving. No, they, like us, 
that eminent domain that of our homes. And uh, uh, but there's the trail of tears, and we feel sorry for these people. We feel bad. The diaspora, the great ethnic diaspora, went to the degree that anyone talked about it. It was to scold the people who were exiled. And I wanted to correct that record. And I've never had a better, more heartfelt, more uh, genuine response uh, to any book that I've written. So I have to untenable. The, the whites leaving America's cities, and not just whites, but people like Michelle Obama's family and others, the uh, people that had been a part of these cities for a long time that fled, you see actually a similarity to the American Indians that were displaced by, by American colonialism at the time. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, if you look at the, the Trail of Tears, I mean, it was an eminent domain issue. They got paid. Right. Right. You know, I, wasn't, I mean, they probably didn't want to leave. So they got paid. They, they got sent on the trail, you know, just like the people in Little Italy in New York. I Joe, mean, if they were property owners, they got paid. Jack, they didn't want to go. Jack, let me ask you this. And if people have questions, we're going to try and um, take them if we can at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. So th- there was an increase in uh, black families moving in to a lot of American cities and you write that a lot of people chose to leave these cities because of an uptick in crime and a degradation in the quality of education and schools in these cities. A lot of people are going to say that you're essentially describing racism by any other name. These uh, these families ended up departing, those that may not have been eminent domain, because the black people brought with them all this crime and a degradation in the quality of education in schools. What was it that caused the degradation of America's cities? What caused the uptick in things like crime and the degradation of quality of life issues? Well, you know, I'll just give you a a specific instance from Newark, which is my hometown. Uh, And then I tell the story in my book of uh, Sissy Houston, uh, the mother of Whitney Houston. Her father, in that first great wave of uh, from the, the Great Migration from the South, like virtually all the blacks who came up then, came to the northern cities to work. These were two-parent families, Christian to almost to a person, hardworking. They worked through the Depression. Her father did it, a foundry, raised eight children, all of them, you know, God-fearing, and they, they sang well, too. So, uh, But then... And and, uh, Sissy Houston tells this book in her memoir about her daughter. She said, you know, she lived in this cozy little village in Newark. It was integrated. It was fine. And then she said, you know, she started seeing these families breaking apart, uh, the drugs coming into the neighborhood, the crime coming into the neighborhood. And then in Newark, we had the riots in 67. And then she says to her husband, John, she goes, we've got to leave. And so they moved to the suburbs. Kanye West's mother who lived in Michelle Obama's neighborhood. And when she wrote her memoir, said exactly the same thing. After Kanye got mugged and he had his bicycle tires slashed as a boy, she said, call it black flight, call it whatever, but we're out of here. Um, and so it went across all races and creeds faced with this. And the real cause, which was totally ignited by uh, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, was the subsidization of fatherlessness, the encouragement mm-hmm. of fatherlessness, and the breakdown of the family. I tell the story in, uh, in my book uh, uh, based on a, 
an account. I found all these self-published or unpublished books, one written by a guy who grew up in Columbus Homes, which was the housing project that was imposed to replace Little Italy. When he moved in, he's a black kid. He's a family of like six kids. Uh, they thought it was the seventh wonder of the world. You know, brand new appliances, everything works. Heat in the, in the winter, you know, and uh, all, you know, maintenance is perfect and everything's great for two years. Milkmen, you know, housing projects, consider this. Milkmen made deliveries. Breadmen made deliveries. Doctors made house calls. And it's a fully integrated public housing project. And then he says, he says, right in the book, he goes, I could see it happening. The Instead of having two-parent nuclear families move in, we're having welfare mothers move in. They couldn't control their children. And then the money that would had been being used for maintenance and upkeep was now being used to replace broken windows and, and theft and all the light bulbs that were stolen. Crime exploded. Drugs exploded. So the Alcombe's Homes opens in 55. By 65, it was unlivable. By 85, uh, it was gone. And then they blamed the building. But the building wasn't the problem. The problem was the fact that the social fabric was fraying, and no one was allowed to talk about it. And the great injustice we've done to black America is our silence. This is both Republicans. Republicans are more cowardly even than Democrats on Mm. this issue. And this, that leads into the whole George Floyd side. Interesting. Uh, no one- Jack, let me get you to pause. And uh, if people are just tuning in, my guest is uh, Jack Cashill. His book, his latest book, is uh, Untenable, The True Story of White Ethnic Flight from America's Cities. It's available on Amazon and a lot of other places where books are available. I'll take your calls uh, with Jack in a moment at 800-848-9222, especially if you have a question, even especially if it's a challenging question. We'd uh, love to hear that rather than just a, a random comment or your thoughts on what Jack is uh, is saying. But essentially, as I read Untenable, the reason so many people, not just whites, but people like uh, Michelle Obama's family and the uh, Whitney Houston family and Kanye West family, the reason they left America Cities is because Jack offers some pretty compelling evidence, including discussions and interviews with the people that did the actual leaving that there was a subsidization of fatherlessness, which led to a decline in the social fabric and an uptick in things like crime. And uh, this is something that you really don't hear anywhere else. And it's something that seems pretty well argued in the book. So I'd love to invite your comments and your questions specifically at 800-848-9222. And then uh, we'll get into an equally uh, contrarian view of the George Floyd case in a little bit as well. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll continue with your questions. 800-848-9222. My guest is Jack Cashel. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. And now the end is near. In 
so I face the final curtain My friend, I'll say it clear I'll state my case of which I'm certain I've lived a life that's full I traveled each and every highway And more, much more than this I did it my the great Frank Sinatra singing My Way. This is a, a birthday bumper music selection from Mike Latanzio. I don't know if he's still the commissioner of the New York City Softball League, but he was when I played in it. And uh, I will tell you, as the manager of my radio station's team at the time, he was a delight to deal with as a uh, as an administrator. And uh, by day, he's an attorney. I think he works in the... Well, I think he's an attorney. Works in the New York City Corporation Council's office. I haven't seen Mike uh, in a few years because I'm not in that league anymore, but he's a great guy. And uh, wishing him a happy birthday. My guest is Jack Cashel. He is the author of the book Untenable, the true story of white ethnic flight from America's cities. And essentially, he takes a what I'm describing as a contrarian view to the uh, conventional wisdom as to why these cities, Newark, Detroit, etc., went from being primarily white, German, Italian, Jewish, to being primarily black. Uh, Jack, do you think that's a fair description, contrarian view of what the conventional wisdom is? Yeah, it's a, it's a concurrent view among people who uh, write books about white flight. Right. But uh, I have an advantage over them, and I was there, you know. And when I was doing the book, by the way, the book is uh, in a large part a memoir, and it's really kind of a more upbeat book than the, you might think sure. given the topic. But, uh, and I had the, uh, for me, it was a great project because I, I touched base with at least 50 people I hadn't talked to in 50 years. So, uh, just to get their take on it. And what I discovered, and this is the kind of the upbeat part, is is the word that kept coming up to describe our neighborhood in the 50s and 60s was idyllic. This is a working class in Newark neighborhood, you know, and no one would describe, you know, from the outside, it's idyllic. But it was so perfectly functional, harmonious, and congenial. And it was, uh, it was very Catholic, and it was centered around, it was mostly Irish and Italian centered around our church and school, and, and it just worked, you know, and it could have continued to work for the foreseeable future. You know, there's one, Frank, just one wrinkle, and this is sort of a, a thing that almost never gets discussed, is that in 1924, uh, Congress essentially banned immigration from Eastern and Southern Europe. And so uh, this, the flow of working class or poor and working class people willing to take uh, you know, menial jobs and moving to those old neighborhoods dried up, but the flow from the South did not. So it, it caused an imbalance that, that led to the cities becoming blacker quicker than they otherwise naturally would have. And it, and it also allowed for um, us to, for people to stigmatize blacks as the poor menial people. Whereas, you know, in previous generations, the Italians and the Irish, et cetera, you know, in fact, I just saw this, 
this population chart of the of uh, the uh, Newark in 1835, and it said uh, white people uh, 15,000, Irish 6,000, right? But, you know, people had their prejudices. That's very funny. So that's interesting. And I don't think that's something that uh, a lot of people would immediately think of because you think of immigration restrictions now and you think that of that as kind of preserving traditionally white communities. What you're saying is that the immigration restrictions of 100 years ago actually made the cities far less white. That's right. And, That's interesting. Uh, and because they, they especially dried up uh, the Italian immigrant, which was heavy, and the Jewish immigration, which was heavy also. All right. Well, a lot uh, of people... Let alone Polish and Czech and everything else. A lot of people are eager to talk with you. I want to uh, try and get as many questions in as we can. 800-848-9222. Our friend David is uh, in the Bronx. Uh, David, I know you had some health issues. Uh, I'm glad you're up and at him again. Well, I wouldn't say that. I'm basically homebound for the next four weeks. But, um, but aside from that, everything's going great. Yeah, everything's gravy. Yeah. Yes. So um, to get to your guest, who, in my opinion, sounds like a very angry and bitter white man who thinks that <laughs> he's been stolen from him because of his skin color. But my question to you, sir, is I'm 52 years old and have lived through white flight in the suburbs around New York City. When we moved into a neighborhood that had seven houses, two of which were black, apparently three blacks in the neighborhood was too much. And by the time we left, that neighborhood was completely black. And there was no crime. These were all middle-class black people. But because of concerns about property values and things like that, the neighborhood became all black. And the suburbs of New York, like Long Island, Massapequa, which is near where I grew up, they're 98% white, and they keep it that way. You're telling me that's a natural phenomenon, that there's no racism involved in the segregation that goes on in the suburbs outside of New York City and our other major cities? I'm not, I, my book isn't about the suburbs. My book is about well, the, the people uh, white ethnic the neighborhoods in America's the cities. The people who left the cities moved to the suburbs because they wanted to maintain that lifestyle, and they've been working hard to do that ever since, much to the detriment of black people who try to live in those communities for the same reasons. Black people want better schools and economic opportunities, just like everybody else. Right. But well, if they're forced to live in communities like Roosevelt or Amityville or Hempstead, that's not going David, to let me get let them. me get Jack to respond just because a lot of other people want to comment. Uh, do you have any thoughts on kind of what the ripple effect was on the suburbs because of all these families uh, departing America's cities at the time? Well, you know, the suburbs I concentrated on were the suburbs where working class people went which were like 50 or 60 miles away from, from in my case, in Newark. Uh, they moved down to the Jersey Shore and to, to these scrub lands that were just being carved out of the Pine Barrens because they couldn't afford anything closer. But looking at the uh, suburban development, uh, I, don't, I can't speak to Long Island. And I will say this again, is that Jewish populations are more susceptible because they did not have Catholic schools. They did not have private schools at all. And because they were... Um, and they had very high standards and expectations. Um, but in, in our case, when people left the suburbs, they left uh, unwillingly, unhappily, and miserably. They moved mm. to places without uh, any kind of center, any kind of heart, uh, without a heartbeat. 
And it was an unhappy circumstance. And they didn't leave because they wanted to. When your mother gets mugged for the second time and your home gets invaded for the second time, yeah, you have reason to be angry. And, uh, and that was the norm. L- let me try and squeeze in some more people, Jack, who want to chat with you. Larry's in Brooklyn. Hi, Larry. Yeah, hi. I just want to know, outside of Michelle Obama, I'm wondering why you wrote the book. I'll tell you why. Because I grew up in Canarsie, which uh, I don't know if you included that in the book, but it was famous in 1969 for the school boycott. And I was caught up right in the middle of it, living a block away from the school. I saw all the reporters and everything. It didn't work. They held back the kids for a couple of weeks, and they had to go back. But isn't it obvious that they wouldn't make a spectacle out of their race, out of their uh, out of their uh, racist, uh, if it was a racist motivation, they wouldn't make a spectacle out of being racist. Isn't it obvious that they did it because of crime? I mean, people would advertise and keep their kids back and say, look at me, I'm racist. So right, so Larry, where, what, where's the, what's your question where's exactly? The need to write the, where's the need to write the book? Because it's obvious that it's crime. I don't understand. It's, uh, no, you're right. Uh, it is obvious, but the uh, the people... I'll give you just an interesting example of one of the more sort of funny highlights I found. There was an op-ed in the New York Times written in 2017 by a woman who was a professor at Princeton and an expert on white flight. She just written some award-winning book on white flight. And uh, she wrote this op-ed contemplating whether it was just economics or was it pure racism that drove people out of the cities. And, And then I go to the comment section. I'm figuring... Okay, uh, these are the New York Times people. They're going to be saying things like our first caller said. And I was a little reluctant to get into it. And then I opened up the comments, and it was story after story after story. New Haven, St. Louis, Philadelphia, Boston, uh, exactly the same story I was telling. And then person after person was saying, how could you possibly write a book on white flight without mentioning violent crime or schools, Mm. right? They were mystified. There were 800 comments. You know, I must have reproduced 20 of them in the book because they're from all over the country and they were saying the same thing. Now, it's not something people don't. You're right. People don't want to be racist. They don't. By the 60s, there was no cachet in northern cities in being racist. It didn't advance your career, you know, or or make you friends. Um, You know, I grew up rooting for the Dodgers and the Boston Celtics. I mean, it, race wasn't a factor. It wasn't the overwhelming factor. It was always a factor. It was not something you ignored, but it wasn't the driving factor in our lives. I had black friends from the time I was a baby. Uh, I, I went to school with black people from the time I was a baby. Uh, and it was uh, the notion that we all just ran because we were afraid is nuts. David is on Staten Island. And, you know, before we go to David, I'll just mention, you know, I have a neighbor who is uh, Middle Eastern. You know, he's he's Arab. And he yeah. moved to our neighborhood from Brooklyn because his wife and young child were present in a park when there was a shooting. And basically yeah. they said, all right, we're done we're moving to a place where you can go to a park and have a reasonable expectation of there not being a shooting. And it had nothing to do with the fact that uh, they were going from uh, a neighborhood that was uh, primarily minority to a neighborhood that was primarily white. It had to do with moving to a neighborhood where there were fewer shootings. Uh, David is on Staten Island. David, you're on with Jack Cashel. 
I would like to make one statement that a lot of it has to do with sexual attitudes when it comes cross-racing, cross-breeding or whatever. And a lot of the girls are being harassed over a period of time. And I've seen it through the movies, et cetera. All right, David. I, I don't know where that's going. All right, thank you. Mike is in, <laughs> Mike's in Brooklyn. Hi, Mike. Yes, also the Immigration Act from the 60s changed a lot of these neighborhoods. And the welfare situation, all of a sudden the federal government was giving single mothers that had multiple husbands money for housing, right, well, for that, living. That's exactly your thesis, right, Jack? That it's what the federal yes, government yeah. was doing that destroyed these families. Right. There's no need to be that's married. Exactly right. uh, and yeah. if you could just get cash without having someone to bring in, uh, you know, a family's income. Right, because, you know, black families went from being about 80% intact in 1950 to being about uh, 40% intact just 20 years later. And, you know, one stray kid in a block can wreck it. One rogue kid can wreck it, wreck a block. You know, two or three of them, you got a gang. All right, Sean is in Brooklyn. Sean, you're on with Jack Cashel. Love you. I'm going to make a quick song. If you can't feed your baby, then don't have a baby. The black guy sung that. Who was that? <laughs> right. Jack, you're 1,000% correct. I'm born and raised in Brooklyn. My grandfather had a store on Pickett Avenue in Nostrand, uh, uh, Frank. So you're absolutely correct. And it has nothing to do with race. It has to do with the way people feel in their home. Uh, right. Frank, if you move to Linden, uh, uh, if you move to Roosevelt, you come out in the morning, your tires are going to be gone. So would you move to Roosevelt, Frank? And I want to tell that previous caller, the sick guy, where is he? Uh, what was his name? Todd? Yeah, well, just uh, keep your question for uh, Jack rather than okay, bring so it up to people that can't respond. Yeah. So I'm just making a quick. So uh, so he's so concerned about, uh, you know. Uh, All right, Sean, I, I don't want you to delve into what the uh, other callers are. Focus on what Jack is saying. Walker in New York City. What's your question for Jack? Yes, uh, this is uh, regarding uh, the, the housing housing projects. It wasn't mentioned that because of income limits, the when it was integrated and people of middle income lived there, they they had to move out, leaving low income people in the housing projects, and that's where all the concentration of uh, poverty was. How come that wasn't mentioned? Well, I, in fact, in the book, I talk about it a lot because I not only did we live in public housing once the highway took our house uh, in Newark, but. Uh, I went back to Newark, and I, was, I worked at a high level for the Newark Housing Authority. What they did, and this was pretty, it seemed like they did it for the benefit of the people who lived there, but they went from having fixed rents, which were relatively affordable fixed rents, to rent based on a sliding scale. So what that meant is that the housing projects and housing authorities ended up paying people to live there once you factored in utility allowances, and it, it encouraged everyone to cheat. It also encouraged families to get the old man out of the house because his income would only raise the rent. Mm. So there were so many uh, uh, you know, negative incentives built into the way the government distributed uh, its benefits that virtually every one of them, Medicaid, uh, food stamps, housing, welfare, they all put a premium on, on fatherlessness. They all made rewarded fatherlessness because the old man's income just uh, made people less and less uh, 
you know, eligible for these various benefits. Jack, I'm going to take one more break. We're going to continue in a moment. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. My guest is Jack Cashel. His book is Untenable, the true story of white ethnic flight from America's cities. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Psychedelic Furs. This is a birthday bumper music selection by a young man named Max Cohen, who is celebrating his birthday today. Former intern of mine at a radio station years ago. A wonderful guy. Glad he's doing well. Hope all his birthday wishes come true. All right. We are uh, spending our final few minutes with Jack Cashill, author, blogger, editor. His uh, latest book is Untenable, the true story of white ethnic flight from America's cities. A lot of people very eager to chat with you, Jack. So we're just going to have to get you to come back for another return engagement to follow up on our discussion on uh, on George Floyd. Uh, let me begin with William and Yonkers. William, what's your question? What, does Jack think that the destruction of the family was an unintended consequence of liberal naivete, naivete or deliberate on account of the Cloward-Piven uh, approach? Uh, that is an excellent question. <laughs> and uh, I know what, who Cloward and Piven are, and I know what they intended to do, and they succeeded. I think, though, it was largely liberal naivete. Uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And uh, in this case, it was very well paved. Pamela is in New Jersey. Hi, Pamela. Hi. Um, quick summary. My parents got married in the 50s. My dad grew up in a town next to Patterson. My mother grew up in Patterson. She, her a Syrian Christian girl was her best girlfriend. She grew up in a lovely neighborhood in the 30s and 40s with Italians, Syrians. They all got along. They used to sing, play the guitar on their front stoop. And uh, they couldn't afford to live in the town next to Patterson. Uh, uh, or buy a home, so they rent it in Patterson in the 50s. And my brother, who's older, started to get uh, beat up, and crime was increasing, so they had to flee. Uh, most of my mother's family l- remained in Patterson, and they were mugged, et cetera, et cetera. I had a great aunt who we tried to convince to move in with us, but she wouldn't move, and she was surrounded by crime. And we would go and pick her up during the riots and get bottles thrown at us. I remember that as a little girl. I remember all of it. And um, so that's just an example of uh, what they refer to as white flight. Yeah, it it sounds like uh, that's very similar to all the stories that you chronicle in the book here, uh, Jack. Yeah, it's a prototypical story. And it was in cities big and small all across northeast, north central even into St. Louis, Los Angeles, San Francisco, uh, Patterson, Passaic, New Jersey, all the New Jersey cities, Camden, Elizabeth, uh, Newark, especially, 
uh, the same pattern. And, uh, and the people who left didn't want to leave. They were leaving more than they were gaining. And, uh, but they had to. 800-848-9222. Pete is in New Jersey. You got about 40 seconds, Pete. What's your question? Yeah, Mr. Frank, it's at the big level, it's a flight of culture away from an anti-culture. That's what it is. Is that an astute analysis, Jack? What do you think? Yeah, I think that's pretty much right on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, it didn't start out that way, but that's the way it's become. If uh, people want to learn more about this and uh, hear more of Jack's fascinating life story, you can check out the book Untenable. It's available on Amazon. Jack, let's do this again soon. Hey, Frank, excellent. And it's great to talk to people who've got some real life experiences. Absolutely. Jack Cashel, Untenable is the book. All right. uh, If you have other thoughts, uh, I'll be happy to take your call. We're going to let Jack get some sleep. 800-848-9222. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm superstar Frank Morano. I hate to bring up a story which risks reigniting uh, ethnic or sectarian or racial tensions after doing that for all of the last hour, but I also hate to spend four hours talking about analyzing these same election results, and um, there's only so much alien news in any given day. So I want to mention this. In Germany, there is a kindergarten named for Anne Frank. Anne Frank is uh, obviously very well known for being uh, not only a Holocaust victim, but because of the diary and because of the film depictions of the diary and how that diary has been studied in schools and elsewhere. Anne Frank has in some ways been one of the most prominent, I would say she has been the most prominent victim of the Holocaust carried out by the Nazis during World War II. And in some ways, I think kind of the face of the Holocaust. So it's it's not a shock that Germany, which has tried to come a long way, from you know, uh, tolerating any sort of anti-Semitism to being very, very strict against anti-Semitism, 
a German kindergarten is named for Anne Frank. And now they're actually talking about changing their name from Anne Frank to World Explorer. Uh, Not surprisingly, it's being criticized by the Jewish community, and it's being criticized by a lot of local politicians uh, amidst the backdrop of what's going on in the Middle East right now with this Israel-Hamas war. First of all, I I don't think it makes a lot of sense to change the name from Anne Frank to World Explorer. It, It doesn't strike me as... It doesn't strike me as a good idea to change the name of take Anne Frank's honor and her legacy away from this one kindergarten. I'm not a big advocate of renaming things to begin with, but to do it now in the midst of this war where a lot of Jews around the world are feeling like they themselves are being attacked, I think it's an awful idea. But sure enough, this Anne Frank Daycare Center wants to change its name in order to, this is a quote, visibly mark a new fundamental beginning for the kindergarten. That's according to the Jerusalem Post. A think tank report on the proposal notes that parents with migrant backgrounds feel uncertain about the name and find it challenging to explain to their children. The report claims the change was suggested because Frank is no longer aligned with the new focus on diversity. Now, if that's true, then that's a real problem. Because diversity should mean just that. Diversity. Diversity of race, religion, opinion, gender. Diversity shouldn't mean celebrating whatever or whomever is the oppressed peoples of the day. Well, okay, uh, the Jews aren't that oppressed anymore, which, of course, they are. Let's uh, let's focus our diversity on ethnic groups or racial groups that are a little bit more oppressed. Let's name it for someone other than Anne Frank. I think this is. An awful idea. And uh, look, obviously it's in Germany. Not much I could do about things in Germany. But it is getting a lot of worldwide attention. And this renaming is part of a broader concept that aims to celebrate the diversity of the children attending the daycare center. That's according to the city's mayor where this is taking place. I don't understand why you can't celebrate diversity. And celebrate the diversity of the students that are attending the daycare center while at the same time honoring Anne Frank, who died tragically at 15 years old. So these are obviously uh, children that come from a lot of migrant parents. And I guess uh, this explanation that they're having a difficult time explaining who Anne Frank was and why it's named for her, I think that's ridiculous. I mean, obviously, maybe you don't want to explain the full brutality of the Holocaust to a five-year-old, depending on that five-year-old's maturity. But I don't think the age-appropriate solution to that is to erase 
Anne Frank from history like this. And apparently officials are set on this name change. A lot of opposition to it, a lot of Jewish groups, but city officials are remaining steadfast in their decision to change the name. So um, they say it's part of a broader concept that aims to celebrate the diversity of the children attending the daycare center. That's according to the city's mayor. I don't like it. I am curious what you think. Uh, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. It has been called Anne Frank, this daycare center, since 1970. Now parents want to rename it World Explorers. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Sorry, I was just pausing to give you a chance to call in because original Rick from New Jersey doesn't like when I keep talking after posing a question to you. So I figured I would give you guys a break and a chance to call in without me kind of uh, unwittingly stealing your potential answer to my question. Now that you've had your moment, let me say hello to Mike. Hi, Mike. Hi. Um, I don't mean to change the subject, but I meant to call in earlier about this. Uh, a lot of people ask, what is this situation in the Middle East all about? And it's a horrible, horrific thing, but the answer might be found in Amnesty International's report on the situation there. Yeah, I'm not familiar with uh, Amnesty International's report on the situation there. Do you want to? Do you want to enlighten us if you can do it briefly? No, I can't. You'd have to read it, Google it, and uh, any of your listeners can do that. All right, thank you, Mike. But by the way, going forward. If you're just going to call in and tell me to read something, maybe the better solution is you could actually just email me the thing that you want me to read, and I'll make an effort to read it. Frank.Morano at uh, RedAppleAudioNetworks.com. That's Frank.M-O-R-A-N-O at RedAppleAudioNetworks.com. All right, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Uh, e. Frank is in Astoria. Hi, E. Frank. Yes, uh, hi, uh, Frank, and uh, thank you for covering the election uh, uh, very well, the elections here locally. I'm, I'm very happy that you uh, looked into many of the elections, but uh, I just want to talk about your last guest, the, his book, Untenables. Is that what the title is called? Right, Untenable, yes. Yes, untenable, and I don't agree with the gentleman because uh, I grew up in in the early seventies here in Queens, and life was quite different after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in nineteen sixty was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee, and it was a, a large uh, cry for civil rights throughout the country, and all the cities burnt down. Uh, I remember when I was four years old, this the city was. Uh, New York was under curfew. They didn't allow children during the Vietnam War to be in. They would cross stop you and find out if you know your child was. Uh, you know. Right. Yeah, I'm familiar with the history. Thank you, E. Frank. I'm just you drive me crazy with that radio on in the background. Please turn your radio off if you're going to call in. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Kevin is in New Jersey. Hi, Kevin. Kevin. Hello. Kevin, what's on your mind? Kevin? All right. Kevin's got other things on his mind. Are you there? I hear you. 
No? Okay. 800-848-9222. Brian is in Baltimore. Hello, Brian. Oh, thank you for taking my call. I can kind of tie in your last two topics, well, your last topic and your guests together, because in all, I'm, I'm from Baltimore, and um, I agree with you. Your guest uh, wrote the book. I can't wait to read it. Um, it's a book about Baltimore and Amazon. It's called Fulfillment. And it tells it it's kind of like my parents' story. They came from the South, and they met here in Baltimore, and they got married and raised a family here in um, Northeast Baltimore, kind of a, in the city, but it's kind of a suburban part. But the truth matters, and it's flight going on still in Baltimore City. It's black flight um, because you, you're tired of crime and violence. It's not because, and it's to a point where you don't even want to live around your own people because they don't have the same values as you do. And that really has anything to do with race. It's about values, and, it, and it's sad. And, um, like it's your own person that looks like you, and um, but. They don't have the same values, and they might come from a broken home, and that those influences play on your kids. And people say, like your previous, I, I know you say don't like retaliate on previous callers, but if you don't know the truth, like they're trying to deny the name of that school in um in Germany, Germany, right, right. If you hide things, the reason why things are called that, and then things get lost in translation, then a new narrative is formed. And then you don't really know the truth. And some things are racist, but at the end of the day, everybody wants the same thing for a family. You want your family to thrive. You want your, mm-hmm. if you have a son, you want him to be taller than you, faster than you, and, and do well. And you want good quality of life. And when your quality of life is in jeopardy, that's the problem. Um, and go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree with you, Brian. And uh, just to be clear, I, I don't have a problem with people responding uh, to what uh, other callers have said. I, I have a problem with people when they kind of attack other callers when the caller is not there to defend themselves, especially if, um, you know, I have someone on that's prepared to answer questions. So it's not like I'm not, uh, I don't, I, I don't have any tolerance for people referencing other callers. It's just an attack on someone that can't defend themselves that I take a little bit of an issue with. I understand that. So, but so the very first caller that called, and I'm not attacking him, but I I, I kind of disagree, I very much disagree with what he said because um, and that kind of goes again with the truth where you have people that argue something and try to make a point, and I've heard people tell me, and I'm black, in case you didn't know, <laughs> but um that you know I'm a victim of um telling me I'm a victim of this and I'm um and they had white privilege and I'm like there's no way I went to Catholic school. Grew up in a middle class family. I mean, it was. I mean, every narrative that they tried to tell me I was, it, it wasn't true. It was just because they assumed what they hear in the media. And in Baltimore City, we have a mayor that, ironically, when he won the election four years ago, he got out of the seven, eight candidates that ran against him, he got the majority of white votes. And when he got in office, I mean, um, he kind of like shunned the, the, his white supporters, and it's like it's. Um, it, it kind of reverse discrimination against them, and it's always uses the excuse that you know this uh, the blacks here were mistreated. We're um, we're my we, he talks as, as if we're a minority in our city, but actually seventy percent Baltimore City seventy percent black, so we can't be the minority in right, the city. Right, right, exactly. But it's a majority it, minority city. The truth, right? But when you spin the truth, 
and and it, it just it makes a bad narrative and, and it's you can't hide the truth like it's so I'm interested and curious to read his book because, like I said, I don't know if you ever read the book Fulfillment. No, who wrote Amazon. it? I can't remember. I'll, but I'll check it out. I will check it out. Hey, uh, Brian, thanks for the great call. It's, thank you. Thank you. I want to try and get some other people here. Neil also listening on WCBM in Baltimore. Hi. Mr. Morano Domini, how are you tonight? <laughs> I'm hanging in there. <laughs> uh, so I think that, you know, Trying to cancel Anne Frank is just a, a horrible idea. Um, everybody's got to kind of run to the middle. Um, I also wanted to comment quickly on a topic you had about 10 days ago or two weeks ago about people who had fears or I forget what it was. It was something about uh, phobias or fears uh, in general. But my father and I both coached the sport for many, many years and one of the I went to see a uh, to a national symposium for our sport, and that I, I usually lean toward a lot of the psychological um, conversation uh, talks that were given. And I met a fellow by the name of Dr. Alan Goldberg, who talked about reframing someone who has a block or a fear of doing a skill. And very simply, he said, "Have the student write down the skill that they're suffering with, and on the opposite side of the page." write down all the things that they can do and then talk to them about why is it this one thing that in particular that they're fearful of and the answer is always they've attached some sort of emotion to it so you have to kind of try and figure out how to get around it and um in general speak in general terms i think that that is what a lot of people deal with where they have attached some emotion to something and can't get around it I just thought I'd uh, try to add that into the, the conversation for the evening. Um, just it was something that struck me a while back, and it it was successful in in uh, trying to reframe what he would call a block. Interesting. And getting a student to try to detach from the emotion of that skill, um, or any skill that or anything body is suffering with. So I just yeah. Um, add that in. Neil, thank you. I'm losing you a little bit, and I want to try and get to some other people here. 800-848-9222. Robert is in Pearl River. Hi, Robert. Yeah, hey, John Frank. I tell you, I, I really loathe when they do this removing. I call it removing history, not even rewriting. Mm. It's the best way they remove. You know, what happened with the commemorative 9-11, the three firemen, they just happen to be white. They want to change it. There's really uproar about it. But what about if you have a situation like this? Robert and Lee, uh, Washington and Lee University is a law school there. Washington, they want to remove Robert E. Lee. So what happens to people who got their diploma? They got to rewrite their diploma or say, well, my diploma was racist because Robert E. Lee was part of the name Robert E. Lee. Now they're going to change the name just to Washington. You know, I, 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 I agree with you, Robert. I don't think, uh, you know, I, I'm not a big believer, as I said, in this push to rename everything and take people's names off things. Even people that I might not necessarily be crazy about, like J. Edgar Hoover. You know, the name's up there. Let's keep it up there and let's use it as an opportunity to learn from uh, people. But I, I really think that mentioning that, the situation with Robert E. Lee, in the same conversation as uh, taking this this school's name away from Anne Frank, I think it, it it does a little bit of an injustice to Anne Frank because Anne Frank was a pure, unadulterated victim 
of of hate and Nazism. And a lot of people, while uh, there's a lot of great things that you could say about Robert E. Lee, a lot of people view Robert E. Lee as being most famous these days for fighting for a cause that uh, had as one of its central tenets the enslavement of other human beings. So I, I think it's it's possible to think it's okay to take Robert E. Lee's name off of something, but not okay to take Anne Frank's name off of something. So I don't think it's the same thing. I happen to agree with you that there's not a big need to take Robert E. Lee's name off of that university uh, anyway, but I think it's kind of a different ball game than what we're talking about with uh, with Anne Frank. 800-848-9222. Kevin is in New Jersey. Hi, Kevin. Hey, Frank. How are you? I am like a, a rock star minus the <laughs> tour bus and crazy fans. Well, good for you, because I've actually experienced that myself. But anyway, my uh, point is uh, about the question about Anne Frank. And when I was over in Germany in that particular area 20-some-odd years ago, um, what I discovered is their immigrant problem is uh, primarily from the uh, Arabic nations. So I think part of the problem with the Anne Frank thing is the parents have to explain to their children who might be kind of lean a little bit more towards the crazy Palestinian philosophical side. Um, And they are going to have a hard time explaining like the Anne Frank angle of like this poor innocent girl who was killed for, See, that's interesting, and that's something that I haven't heard really anywhere expressed that way. So you're saying that um, a lot of these uh, parents that might have their children at these schools, they may kind of view modern-day Jews as kind of the bad guys in the situation, and it really doesn't necessarily jive with their belief system to have a school name for someone that was a Jewish victim when they view the Jews these days as the oppressors. Right. Essentially, right, because of the current situation. So, I mean, that's, I think, a factor most folks probably wouldn't consider. Um, and like I said, I, I'm I'm talking about my personal experience, which was, once again, 20-some-odd years ago over in the European area. Um, but that was, once again, the general feeling I got kind of actually in England as well, um, kind of like how people feel in this country about the Southern invasion and the people that are referred to as immigrants or you know, as I would think, to invaders more so. But anyway, that's, once again, not the subject we're talking about. We're talking about the Anne Frank thing, which, once again, it's just ridiculous that anybody would want to change that name. But, like I said, if you factor in the parents having to explain to their children who are too young to really understand anything other than what their parents tell them, and generally you believe your parents, um, it would be kind of hard to explain, like, once again, the whole concept. So it makes sense. And then, of course, Germany being very similar to our culture, they would definitely, you know, want to, they don't want to make a lot of waves, it seems. Like, once again, it's like people are afraid to just accept, you know, accept what's fact or truth, in a sense, or just, once again, just human nature and things like that. And also factor in uh, history and things like that to uh, what's going on in current situations. Interesting. Oh, great point, Kevin. Thank you. 800 Dave is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hi, Dave. How are you doing there, uh, Frank? Listen, uh, this whole idea, uh, I could uh, piggyback what the other guy just said, but mainly the concept, the whole idea, they don't want to honor. I don't, I, I, I don't want to get into whether his, uh, his person is Jewish or not. 
this is somebody to honor. And it makes absolutely no sense. Is everybody who has a name on something that they're taking the person's name off to get the world happiness or world this? It makes no sense. What's the point? I, and this is a person. You know, uh, Dave, I completely agree with you. And I'll go further and say, you know, uh, maybe if they had brought this idea up and then weren't necessarily aware of the backlash there was going to be to this, maybe they say, all right, we came up with an idea. It was a bad idea. We're going to abandon it. But the fact that they are seeing literally worldwide opposition to this and they are sticking with this name change, it's really just staggering. I mean, two things in in New York City. You had Woodrow Wilson High School became something called August Martin because they don't like something that Woodrow Wilson did. I understand that. Andrew Jackson High School became Campus Magnet because Andrew Jackson, there's more negative than positive. But to her, the idea of her, something to be on it, that was a martyr that, that went through this, somebody to look up to or survive, you can agree with you. Dave, thank you. I appreciate that. All right, we're going to continue with your calls in just a bit. And uh, we are going, we'll try and go through some more of the mail as well. If you have mail that you want to send me, you can get it to me at frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. That's frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Black Sabbath, another Mike Latanzio birthday bumper music selection. Happy birthday, Mike Latanzio. Normally we go through the mail on Tuesdays, but uh, yesterday we just had so much going on. Oh, by the way, that fella that was supposed to call in at 1.30 in the morning from prison, he did call in at 1.30 in the afternoon. I knew it was going to be the AM, PM with him. And you know what was so frustrating to me? Not only did he call in at one thirty to another show, but I heard that he had a crystal clear phone line. And that's what I was worried about. I was worried about me not being able to hear him because a lot of the time when you call from prison, either with the phones that they you have in the common area or if you have a smuggled uh, mobile phone – a lot of times the connection is not so clear. He said that the people that spoke to him said he sounded great. So hopefully we can try and get him back on the show sometime soon. Uh, we'll see. But anyway, 
we didn't get to go through a full airing of the mail, so let's try and get to as much as we can at this moment as part of... From the world of Twitter or X, and you could find me on X at Frank Morano. That's Frank M O R A N O. The X user Jerkly writes very simply Frank Morano at Frank Morano. He writes or she writes, Frank, you're a pathetic fraud. Okay, I'm glad we got that out of the way. Thank you. Uh, Bernard Getz has a review of the song that we played earlier, Nighttime Radio. He says, good song. Same tune as Wild Weekend. All right. Uh, In response to a tweet that I showed of my son and me voting for Councilman Joe Borelli for the last time, Sage Girl 999 writes, Oh, please, enough of your kid. I got to tell you, if you're not interested in seeing photos of my son Carmine, you should absolutely not follow me on any social media because you're going to see a lot of, uh, of Carmine. Richard writes, I grew up, this had to do with our topic yesterday about thrift stores. I grew up in the Atlantic City area and spent a lot of time on the Atlantic City boardwalk. There was a store that I called a junk shop on the boardwalk that had a lot of crazy things in the window prominently displayed in the front of the window for all to see was a genuine shrunken head. It was slightly bigger than a baseball. This was in the 1950s. I seriously doubt that the store still exists. But if you know any real old-timers in AC, they might recall the store. Well, I'm going to look into this, Richard, and see if uh, anybody knows what store this was, because that's that's pretty interesting. I actually will look into that. All right, Luke from Canada writes, Good day, Mr. Morano. I heard that you cannot source O. Henry chocolate bars in the U.S. If so... Provide me with your station's mailing address, and I'll send you a few. Thanks, Luke G. in Ontario. Yeah, you really don't have to send me any, because this was just for my my sister-in-law Kat's Halloween costume. She was going as a candy bar heiress, the O. Henry candy bar heiress, and so I don't know that we necessarily have a hankering of for O. Henry's, but I do think Americans should be able to have access to the same can, uh, candy bars that the Canadians are. No reason we shouldn't get a no Henry here, but you don't have to send. The last thing we need is more candy bars. All right. and uh, But if you do want to send me anything, whether it's a candy bar or anything else, you can uh, write to me at the other side of midnight, P.O. Box 1777, attention Frank Morano, New York, New York, 10163. So that's uh, New York, New York, 10163. P.O. Box 1777. Just send it to my attention, Frank Morano. All right. Um, you know, a couple. Let's see. James writes, reporting responsibility. Hey, Frank, all the news that's fit to print. Who should make that judgment? Always great listening. Jamie B. Well, that's interesting, Jamie, that you said that. 
because I got another question here, and I'm going to be talking about him in a, in a, in a half hour, so I wasn't going to take this question now. But one of the things that first impressed me about the new House Speaker Mike Johnson is his questioning of Mayorkas, the Secretary of Homeland Security. And this was weeks or months before he was Speaker. And you really should watch this clip on YouTube. I'll see if we can get the audio of it, but it's we're a little short-staffed in terms of audio acquisition, so I don't know if we're going to get to play it. But he asked the fundamental question to Mayorkas, which had to do with what misinformation was and what's true and not true. And he asked him the most important question. He asked him, who gets to decide? Who gets to decide? That is the fundamental question when it comes to all this stuff. Misinformation, censorship, uh, everything. All the news that's fit to print. And I, my view is everybody should get to make that judgment. Everybody should get to put out at least, should get to put out everything, whatever they want. And it's up to the people to decide for themselves. All right, Mike writes, you could at least have said, hello, Frank, today when Michael from Manhattan said askew or eschew, you could have have said, God bless you or gesundheit, or at least maybe you're so good looking. Where's your manners? Yours are still better than his him sneezing all over the place. Eschew. Thank you for always great radio. Mike out. Bring Kenneth back. Yeah, getting a lot of people that uh, um, that are, are missing Kenneth, but that's okay. Even moving on to other things. George on the in the world of Facebook writes, Frank, the show has devolved to the level of a community college level radio station. Well, all right. Well, hopefully it's a community college that's worth listening to uh john writes on the story that noam laden reported on yesterday comment for the new tall guy in the room recently back from surgery john writes after he gets this surgery i would assume his legs are no longer proportionate to your body you would have these long legs and women are now looking at you but it's more than that that they are cracking jokes at your weird tyrannosaurus rex arms do you now also get your arms lengthened? I'm happy with my five foot eight self. At least my arms match. All right, John, that's a good point, and it's one that I would not have considered. William writes on the subject of the terrible twos. Lots of luck, Frank. Oh, the texting, meaning I have to text people who haven't responded to my wife's evite. I am from the if-they-come-they-come come school of thought, too. These are the minute sacrifices we make to have a real companion. Certainly true. Bruce writes, Hi, Frank. I guess you have a new call screener. Knows he's busy. Told him I was calling from San Pedro, Belize, and got hung up on again. Again! I know it must be difficult. Had a lot of calls, but maybe you should put out a memo that San Pedro, Belize, in Central America exists. Get this. Got an original Italian stiletto switchblade that I bought in Oregon when I had money and was building homes on the coast. It's the real deal. Yeah, I don't think, Bruce, I'm not sure what happened, why you didn't get on the air, but uh, I don't think anybody was hanging up on you because you were claiming to be from San Pedro, Belize, and then we didn't think that San Pedro, Belize existed. So, Robin writes... 
On the subject of Dove soap, a dermatologist years ago told me to use Dove soap unscented, unscented because it has a moisturizer in it. Bobby Knight may be the greatest college coach. One player, he squeezed his groin and choked. Larry Bird, I think, transferred out. Bruce from Brooklyn. All right, that's Bruce. Well, you know what? Look, people have uh, different different takes on different things. I, I'm not uh, I'm not submitting him for sainthood anytime soon. I'm just saying I thought he was an effective college coach and certainly very very associated with college hosting over the years. Oh, I saw this comment. <laughs> So there was a negative comment in one of the podcast reviews on Apple or on iTunes. It's on Apple, as uh, Andrew Cuomo said. And I really would appreciate it if you'd leave a nice review. But I saw this person's review. But it wasn't enough that I saw the review. This person had to email it to me as well. So since this person went to the trouble of emailing me this review, let me read it to you. And you can obviously feel free to put up a positive review as well, but this is this person's review. Frank Morano, an old lady personality in an old man body. This is a show for an elderly listener base with sleep issues. Nonetheless, Morano courts compliments with lame stories about his child's antics. A shallow, vain man... Morano is much akin to a frustrated theater kid forever seeking fame and the spotlight. His intentional mispronunciation of words such as Salmon and Connecticut scream, look at me, look at me, as does his hourly braying of good morrow. His assumes, ah, he meant to say this, his assumes an affected accent when saying France. It is nauseating. We've not heard him say Hiroshima with a Japanese accent yet, nor Mayo with an Irish affectation, but no doubt it is coming. He has adopted the moniker Superstar, which he claims is an homage to an old pro wrestler, despite never mentioning that wrestler's name. You can see a pattern here. In an endless effort to impress, Morano often cites expertise in, well, everything. Although a self-proclaimed expert in law, history, literature, politics, film, journalism, etc., do not expect to hear depth of thought. Critical thinking is not Morano's fort. And he will defend anyone from TV land or Hollywood. When challenged on his defense of Woody Allen, Morano stated that although he had never read Ronan Farrow's expose, and never said that, he, nor had he viewed the documentary, Alan was innocent and was, in fact, a great artist. After all, it was not his child that Morano had, that uh, Alan had molested. Morano seeks to dazzle, explaining to his audience that he's a member of the Sky Club. I don't even know what the Sky... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, declaring that he pays extra for his platinum card. His true wisdom shines through upon wondering aloud if taking a self-loan from his 401k is a sound idea. Finance, it appears, is not one of his many areas of mastery. Oh, and he refuses to dine at any chain restaurant. To callers who annoy him, he is much the petulant child. This despite claiming that he is the most patient person in radio and the nicest guy in radio. All of the above, and yet he wonders why a nationally known radio host, Mark Simone, refuses to acknowledge him at radio gatherings and has blocked him on social media. Self-reflection is not one of Morano's strengths. But you can SMS text him 
All text messages are based in SMS. He doesn't ask me anything. You can ask Superstar anything except his age. Although he claims to be the nucleus of my social circles, it is more that he is the living embodiment of the fictional George Costanza, an obnoxious know-it-all blowhard who belongs on the other side of the glass. There are so many wonderful broadcast professionals on his station. Unfortunately, Morano is not one of them. Superstar remains true to form, preoccupied, preoccupied with his own legacy, a forever wannabe, an empty show hosted by a shallow man. And in case you were wondering, he says, don't bother. I have to tell you, I was incredibly flattered by that review because this person spent so much time on that and so much effort. And honestly, you could tell. There are so many things that I do that bother that guy, Michael Tripp, that he listens all the time, which I think is great. If, if you can't stand anything that I'm doing, but you are listening all the time, then I think that is wonderful. David in the Boogie Down Bronx writes, it would be really nice if someone was picking up your phones. It just rings and rings and rings. As I said, we're going through some transitions with the telephone talent coordinator. Just be patient. Where, where are you going? It's the middle of the night, right? Just be patient. Ellen, who always has a thoughtful comment or a question, writes, Hi, Frank, with all... I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll read the relevant portion. Hi, Frank. With all the anti-Semitism, anti-Jewish, and anti-Israeli demonstrations going on now, I was wondering about hate speech, threatening speech, and terrorism. When does hate speech cross the line to becoming a threat? And what about terrorism? I'm sure you know all the stories of Jewish people feeling threatened, surrounded by crowds, and intimidated. Not to mention what's going on with protesters or other students on college campuses, as well as the ripping down of posters of innocent people, even babies. What about the screams of gas the Jews or Hitler didn't finish the job? Would they be threats or terrorism? Are any of these or all of these protected? Do any of them fall under the heading of threats or terrorism? And if so, what is the legality here? I don't expect you to be able to answer this in an email since it's probably very complicated, but it might be a good topic of conversation. Also, if you wouldn't mind, could you please explain once again why crying fire in a crowded theater does come under the category of free speech? Uh, let me, uh, great questions all, and I'm going to do my best to answer as many, much of your email quickly. For starters, your question about yelling fire in a crowded theater. First of all, no one um, raises the issue of yelling fire in a crowded theater because if there's a fire in a crowded theater, of course you want to yell fire. It's the falsely yelling fire in a crowded theater that some people have uh, taken issue with. So, of course, it's free speech. The justice on the Supreme Court that wrote about it, he was not writing for the majority. And those words that he wrote don't carry any legal weight. Also, the case where he wrote that, Shank versus the United States, it was uh, from 1919, I think, around there. It was overturned in 1969. So even if that Supreme Court justice was writing for the minority, the Supreme Court overturned a previous decision. So it carries no legal weight at all. There might be other crimes that you could be charged with depending on the state. For instance, if the if you yelled fire in a crowded theater falsely and it caused a panic, 
and people headed for the door and got hurt, then maybe you could make a case that those words incited a riot, which is a crime. But the speech itself is protected. There's no law that says it wouldn't be. And there's a very good article on it from uh, last year in Reason. You can find it on Reason.com. Headline, Yes, You Can Yell Fire in a Crowded Theater. And it's uh, worth reading. As far as your um, broader question about um, hate speech, threatening speech, and terrorism, hate speech is free speech. Hate speech is, in my judgment, absolutely protected by the First Amendment. You have absolutely every right to stand on a street corner and say, I hate Jews, I hate blacks, I hate Catholics. You have every right to do that. What you don't have a right to do is threaten someone. You don't have a right to say, I'm going to kill you. You don't have a right to say, I'm going to murder you, I'm going to burn your house down. As far as what terrorism is, uh, terrorism is violence to achieve a political end. And especially if it involves the targeting of innocent people. So you might find a lot of these demonstrations on college campuses objectionable. But as far as as far as I'm concerned, they absolutely are protected speech. All right. Uh, this I'll make this the last one here. Joseph writes, superstar. I hear a lot of TV yak on your show. The series for you is Lazarus Man. A post-Civil War drama that ran for one season in the mid-1990s, starring Robert Urich as one of Mr. Lincoln's bodyguards. He was set up by the Deep Staters as a member of the conspiracy, taken to Texas, and buried alive in a rebel uniform. He dug himself out, but is now an amnesiac searching for his past. Once it's known that he's alive, the pursuit of the traitors is relentless. It's a series written by history buffs. It includes a conspiracy to murder Custer whilst on occupation duty. The Nebraska Territory wanting to enter the Union as an all-white state. This actually does sound pretty interesting. I'd not heard of this show, but I actually might check this out. So thank you for that suggestion. If it sounds good to you, it is apparently called Lazarus Man. All right, if we didn't get to your email, uh, you can email me, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. We will uh, try and get to it on the next edition of... Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. I'm always waiting to hear Michael Savage's voice, or at least a disclaimer warning about uh, psychological nudity when I hear this voice. But no, today we're playing Master of Puppets by Metallica in honor of Richard Luthman, who is celebrating his birthday today. We're going to get to your calls shortly, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. So I uh, was leaving my house with my son yesterday. We were going to go for a walk, my... Um, 
wife was at the veterinarian, and uh, we start walking out there. And as soon as I walked out the front door, I knew I was in trouble because our landscaper is out there. And our landscaper is the Brad Garrett mechanic from Seinfeld. He is obsessed with grass and vegetation. And there's somebody else on our uh, lawn. I think he's got a leaf blower or something. Clearly, he didn't get our memo that you're supposed to leave the leaves. So, anyway, I'm trying to get out of there quickly so that he doesn't see. But Carmine is loud. My son is almost two years old. He's loud. And so we're walking, and he sees me. He sees me. He says, hey, I didn't know anyone was home. Oh, okay. I didn't see the car. Yeah, I know. My wife took the car. Carmine's running around. Now he's a full 15 to 20 feet ahead of me. And I'm saying to him, good, good, run so I can run after you and get out of this conversation lest I end up in a grass or tree-induced conversation. So um, the landscaper, Joe, nice guy, very good at taking care of the grass. Everybody in my on my block now uses him. Because our grass looks so good. And I discovered him from my, uh, my Uncle Steve. So he, sa- he points to my son, Joe. Joe points to my son, Carmine, and said, Ah, yeah, you know, pretty soon they're going to be calling him Big Angelo instead of Little Angelo. And I'm thinking to myself, does he think my son's name is Angelo? And then I'm thinking to myself, do I want to correct him and lengthen this conversation? Or do I want to chase after this person that is now, at least for the purpose of this conversation, renamed Little Angelo, which is actually not a bad name. So uh, I said, yeah, you know, I guess so. And then he turns to me and says, and he's sitting in his van all this, you know, while we're trying to leave to go to the playground or push Carmine's car around. And he turns to me and says... I'm sorry. What's your first name again? Again, been my landscaper for three years. And I said, uh, I said, it's Frank. And I gave him a pen with my name on it to remember me by. And then he wanted to have a whole pen discussion. Where did you get this pen? Where did you order this pen? Let me now. Meanwhile, my son is halfway up the block now. I'm looking at him. I'm saying, Joe, I, I kind of got to go. And th- oh, he's just getting started. He wanted to have a whole tree conversation. He says, all right, I'm going to talk to your wife about this, but let me tell you what I'm going to do. Do you see that tree there? It's got red leaves and green leaves. I'm going to encircle it. I said, Joe, I don't care. I didn't even know we had that tree. Talk to her. Talk to the person whose name you know. Let me go chase after Angela. Until then, your influence counts. Use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am superstar Frank Morano, and I am happy to tell you two things. One, I do not look at internet pornography. Meaning, well, I'm sure I have looked at it, uh, but I do not routinely look at internet pornography. Couldn't tell you the the last time that... uh, that that I looked at anything resembling internet pornography. It was probably you know a celebrity sex tape or something. If if uh, if I've ever looked at that, and again we're going back at least a decade. But I will tell you there is nobody, as far as I'm aware, there is nobody that I have consented to. I'll say that there is no one that I have consented to reviewing my computer or my mobile phone to monitor whether or not I am looking at internet pornography. Why is this relevant? Because that is more than I can say for the newly elected House Speaker Mike Johnson. Now, what do we know about Mike Johnson? We know that, among other things, he is up there in the line of presidential succession. Those of you that heard yesterday's program know he is second in the line of presidential succession behind the vice president. Well, in a recently surfaced video from 2022, then-Congressman, now-Speaker Mike Johnson, shared how he and his 17-year-old son, Jack, hold each other accountable when it comes to their porn intake by using a third-party software called Covenant Eye to patrol all their electronic devices. Now, the way this works is it creates a monthly habit report for a designated accountability partner. Here is Mike Johnson talking about this at a Promise Keepers conference last year, I believe. So Covenant Eyes is the software that I, I we've been using a long time in our household. Uh, I was I first learned about it at, I think, a Promise Keepers event in the early 2000s. I think it was developed in about the year 2000. Uh, but it's the largest um, accountability software that there is. And, and there's some paperwork out there on the table that I think everybody may have picked up on the way in. If not, go get it. I, it's a subscription-based. I mean, we don't make any money on this. I'm telling you, I, we use it, okay? I, they're not, I'm, not in, I'm endorsing it because I'm a user. Uh, it's about $15 a month, $16 a month, something like that. And you get up to 10 devices. And what it is, it's accountability software. So uh, men in a church, you know, men's Bible study groups will do it. That's how it's presented at Promise Keepers. But they also mention, hey, when your kids become teenagers, especially if you have boys, dads, they're talking to the guys at this event, you might want to think about doing this with your sons. And so we've been doing that. And so what it does real, real simply is it has an algorithm and software. I'm, it's way above my head how it works. But um, it, it scans. You, you obviously opt into it. But it scans every all the activity on your phone or your devices, your laptop, tablet, what have you. We do all of it. And then it sends a report to your accountability partner. So my accountability partner right now is Jack, my son, right? And so he's 17. So he and I get a report of all the things that are on our phones or all of our devices once a week. If anything objectionable comes up, once a your week? accountability partner gets an immediate notice. I'm proud to tell you my son has he's got a clean slate, all right? Yeah. <laughs> but but we, get, we get a report and it says, hey, no, no uh, activity of concern. And it's really, really sensitive. It'll pick up almost anything. It looks for keywords, search terms, and also images. And it will send your accountability partner a blurred uh, picture of the image. Now, uh, for starters, I think this is a little bizarre 
for any adult to be allowing their teenage son to have uh, access to what adult websites they're they're looking to. But that's uh, that's above my pay grade, and I guess that's for every family to make their own decision. What you heard there is potentially very frightening, and I realize he wasn't the Speaker of the House at the time, but he was still a, a member of Congress, not that high up, but he, I think he was at that point the uh, vice chair of the Republican conference or some title within the leadership that gives him access to some sensitive information. And what he is saying there is that as recently as last year, and presumably this is still going on now, what he is saying there is that the Speaker of the House, and then again, just a member of Congress at the time, has a third-party app reviewing All of his content on his computer. Now, who else gets access to that information? Who else gets access to that video? So I find that so disconcerting. A U.S. congressman is allowing a third-party technology company to scan all of his electronic devices daily? And then uploading reports to his son about what he's watching or not watching? Who else is accessing this data? Is Covenant Eyes not going to share this information with anybody? Could Covenant Eyes have their information be hacked? It's a third-party software monitoring service monitoring all of his devices. All of them. With any public office holder but particularly someone who right now is second in line to the presidency. I view this, at the very least, as a profound national security risk. But I could see a whole bunch of other areas where this is a problem. Uh, Let's say, for instance, that he's exchanging emails with a Democratic operative, uh, say Senator Schumer or President Biden's chief of staff about how to not shut down the government. And uh, they're making compromises on certain appropriations legislation. It would be very easy for someone that has access to these emails, to that data, to blow up that negotiation by leaking them to the press without him even knowing about it. I mean, that's just two examples off the top of my head. I find this very troubling. And I'm curious if you do. 800-848-9222. And honestly, I I also just find it weird that, uh, putting aside the congressional aspect of this, I find it weird that a father and his teenage son would be using an app to monitor each other's pornography intake. I think that, I think it's bizarre. bizarre. I mean, it's one thing if an adult is going to monitor the electronic devices of a minor in his household, especially when he's paying for those devices. You know, they're a minor. You have the responsibility for looking after them and making sure they're not on a wayward path. But it's not up to the 17-year-old to be looking at uh, or getting a report that all of his father's Internet activity is appropriate or not. I mean, there's a difference between being an adult and being a child. 
And uh, I don't think the child should get a veto over what adult websites that Mike Johnson may want to look at. And I also just think by having this kind of software on here, it's almost a tacit admission that you can't trust one another to not go on those websites. And you're saying, well, I can't trust myself not to go on pornographic websites unless there's some app that's going to rat me out to my father or my son, as the case may be. What do you think? 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. I must, before we run out of time here, name this week's listener of the week. And uh, this is someone that, I, you know, I, I had a different one picked out going into today because this, the, the other person is very deserving as well. But this is someone who could be the listener of the week every week. He meets, I'm going to say, seven out of the ten criteria. The criteria are frequency of listening, on-air calls and contributions, quality of written correspondence, on-topic social media participation, insight, topic suggestions, or assisting with guests, evangelism about the program, supporting me or my endeavors, subscribing to the podcast, longevity, and being nice. He meets seven. And I have intentionally not picked this person because uh, he has said he doesn't want to be listener of the week. He's very low-key. He doesn't like his name on the air. He doesn't call in, doesn't want any publicity, doesn't want people knowing that he listens to this show. And just to give you an idea of how thorough he listens, do you know how Ellen in the Facebook group occasionally posts a summary of her view of what we did on the show? This person sends me a daily email of their thoughts on every single segment of the show. This person listens to the show twice and um, listens once live and then listens a second time to the podcast on a speeded up speed so that they can, it's a refresher for them when they write their summary. And then they send me this summary about their opinions on everything we did. Uh, local spotlights, segments, good questions, bad guest, or agree, disagree, here's why. He sends me so many different topic ideas. and um, uh, But the reason I have to pick him, he could be the listener of the week in any given week, but the reason I have to pick this person is because yesterday we had a lot of podcast problems. Apparently about 40 minutes of yesterday's show was cut out of the podcast, and uh, which we'll talk about later, hopefully at our meetings this week. And he was able to pinpoint, because he listens to the show twice, first once live and then again to the podcast, he was able to pinpoint exactly what portions were repeated, which portions were omitted, what portions were cut off. This person is the most thorough listener that we have working at the, the radio network, and he doesn't even work for us. The corrections that he is able to make on our podcasts are stellar. He'll say, oh, the the first bit of what you did was cut off. The last bit of what you did was cut off. And he gets them 
Instantly, as soon as the podcast is uploaded, he has a thorough review explaining what's missing. This person's website is missing from the podcast description. Well, yesterday, and he's been on top of this all day, he was able to pinpoint exactly what's wrong with the uh, podcast from yesterday. And if yesterday's uh, podcast is ever fixed... It will be due to this gentleman who doesn't want to be named, and I am going to respect his wishes. I will just call him Anonymous from, I'm not even going to say where, from Parts Unknown. So, you know who you are. Anonymous from Parts Unknown, you are this week's Listener of the Week. And if you would like to pick tomorrow's bumper music, you are certainly welcome to. And thank you for your frequency of, uh, of listening to the show and the thoroughness that you're keeping everybody on your toes. A bunch of people did write me about the podcast, but by and large, it was five, six, seven aft- hours after Anonymous wrote to me about what was wrong with the podcast. So congratulations to Anonymous. You are this week's Listener of the Week. All right, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. John is in Maryland. Hello, John. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing uh, just just really well. Thank you. Uh, just a little comment on uh, Speaker Johnson's activities with Covenant Eyes. Um, do we know for sure, and I know he said that it's on all of his devices, do we know for sure whether it's on his government-issued devices that could present a problem with sensitive information? Well, first of all, I only know um, what it, we played you in that clip, which where he says it's on all of his devices. So is it possible that he's got a... Um, a work computer or a work mobile phone that um, that that is not monitored by Covenant Eyes? Yes, it's absolutely possible. But what I'll also say, though, is as we learned from the Hillary Clinton affair and uh, a lot of other people, that uh, when you're a member of Congress, especially somebody like a Speaker of the House, you're you're getting sensitive information sent to you on on your personal devices as well. Agree, and that. That's definitely a problem, uh, and I don't know if there's a way that they could. Well, I'm sure that, that would be up to the individual to differentiate that to make sure that it doesn't happen. But I think if he's definitely receiving on all of his government uh, government issued devices, that's a serious problem. If not, I don't see a, a problem with him doing this with Covenant Eyes only because there's plenty of studies that show that the damage that porn is doing, especially to young kids what they're learning, what their view is of what a uh, healthy sex life is, and to try to keep some accountability with with that and with his son, I don't think that's an issue really, and his son may have difficulties finding other peers his age that would be accountable as well because of peer pressure. Yeah, I, again, I think it's one thing for him to monitor his son's devices. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think when the son is also getting a report on the father's devices, I don't know. Just to me, it strikes me as a little weird. Uh, okay. But, hey, I mean, I, we can I, I, agree I, to disagree. Fair enough. Uh, thanks, fair enough. thanks for the call, John. And by the way, if people are thinking about using this app, Covenant Eyes, there is a really interesting article in the the New Republic that you should read about this. It's uh, headline, Mike Johnson's favorite anti-porn app has a dark, creepy history. And it goes into comments made at uh, from the found the president of this company, Ron DeHaas. And um, 
it, 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 it is interesting. There's a lot of concerns about this. And uh, the fact that Johnson is promoting this and that it's been touted widely within certain evangelical spaces for at least 15 years, it's, uh, I think it's potentially somewhat problematic. I really do. There were, there are a lot of these anti-trafficking groups pitching covenant eyes. This was founded by the most notable of these anti-trafficking groups that were, were pitching covenant eyes was Shared Hope International, which was founded by Linda Smith, who served in Congress from 1995 to 1999. And uh, she was elected on a platform devoted to opposing abortion and gay and lesbian rights. And Smith spent her post-Congress time promoting herself as a leader in the movement against sex trafficking. Smith was the keynote speaker at the at a uh, porn and sex trafficking summit where the president of Covenant Eyes asked the audience to imagine their teenage daughter naked on the Internet delivering melodramatic testimony about an American man buying a girl in an undercover video. And the girl looked like my granddaughter. So anyway, um, there it, there it's really I don't know. I, I found this a little weird, this whole this whole thing. But Covenant Eyes doesn't just merely capture screenshots of whatever it is you might think would be categorized as pornography. It goes much further than that. The experience of one Indiana family using this software was was frightening. Covenant Eyes captured screenshots of everything they viewed on their devices from images of YouTube videos watched by her 14-year-old daughter to online underwear purchases made by her 80-year-old mother-in-law. That's according to an investigation from Wired. They learned this after one family member was ordered to install the software by his probation officers, who served as the accountability partner. So while Covenant Eye's terms of service forbid this kind of use in a premeditated legal setting, Wired, which is a technology magazine, they reported that uh, their reporting showed that courts in at least five states are using covenant eyes in just this way, monitoring people awaiting trial or on or on parole. So if you think Mike Johnson's use of covenant eyes is just creepy or unseemly, consider how it's been used against people and how it's been embraced by both churches and law enforcement. The odd, what I consider odd, father-son internet relationship that Johnson has. And again, I think there's a lot to like about Johnson, and I'll get to that you know, in due time. In some ways, the relationship that Johnson has with this might be the least creepy thing about this app. This is taking Big Brother to a whole new level. I think any time you have this, a stranger especially a private company, monitoring everything that you're seeing online. I think it's just a recipe for disaster. I really do. This is Big Brother to the nth degree. All right, 800-848-9222, Noam Layden is here. We're going to talk with him in just a bit. Marilyn is in New Jersey. Hello, Marilyn. Hi, Frank. How are you today? Um, I just wanted to say, I think maybe you're overreacting a little bit in terms of the app. Almost every company 
uh, government agency. They have these apps for all of their employees when they work on their phones. They monitor everything. It's something you do. You go to the wrong site. You get the little red hand that comes up. It's more prevalent than you think. Um, also, I think every time you buy something on Amazon, everything you do, if you're on a computer and internet, is being monitored by somebody. So I don't really think it's that big a deal. And quite frankly, I think it's a little odd to focus on how someone else is rearing their children. I mean, if it works for him and his son and it's helping his son to stay straight so that they don't go off on these peer-directed um, bad influences, what's the problem? Well, first I mean, of all, you're, you're, yeah. really o- you're overly focused on it. And well, first of all, everybody monitors everything, including right. the FBI, the CIA. This, well, and that's a problem. Uh, that's a problem. Yeah, um, it might be a problem, but the reality is it's happened. So to focus on just what he's doing with his son seems a little extreme. Well, That's we're all. focusing on it because he chose to basically do this commercial publicly for Covenant Eyes and I have no problem uh, with if him he monitors every single thing his 17-year-old son does. My problem is twofold. One, on a personal level, and again, I, I don't like judging what goes on in anyone else's family, giving a 17-year-old the ability to think he's the overseer of his father's internet usage But much more uh, concerning is the fact that a third-party app is monitoring all of the wireless devices of the Speaker of the House. And, you know, again, even if it's not on government devices, I mean, you get all sorts of government emails, even on your personal email. You do. I mean, you just do. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Uh, Ed is on Long Island. Ed, what do we know about this? Good morning, Frank. Good morning. I enjoy listening to you. I'm a professional, professional social worker for 50 years, and I find it odd also that he shares this third-party app with his son, but also the whole issue, again, of uh, everyone knows everything about you, and also the fact that he's now the Speaker of the House. As you said, if he has a discussion or email with Schumer or the president, how its norms can get out there, and could be used against him. So I couldn't agree with you more. Well, thanks, Ed. Uh, there's no accounting for taste. If you're agreeing with me, then uh, clearly you're on a wayward path already. 800-848-9222. Kenny is in Florida. Hi, Kenny. Hey, good morning. Okay, my background basically is I'm retired Navy, and my second career was um, diplomatic security mm. for U.S. State Department. So let me explain... Two things. One, I was a data analyst, security analyst, um, as part of one of my jobs. So if you turn around right now and you sit your phone down on your table and you sit there and have a conversation with somebody about, let's say, CPAP. Right. I know. And you'll see ads about the CPAP machine. You're going to see it. Now, all federal facilities, government facilities, block all this stuff. It, you can't do it. When I was at the embassy, there's no way that any of that stuff happens. I could sit at my table at the embassy and talk about something totally outrageous, and it will not come through on my phone as ads like it does privately. So more than likely, everything in, the, in, the, in Washington Inside, within the Capitol, confines of the Capitol, it's all under a firewall. Yeah, can None I, of that stuff I, I, is going to happen. I get it. I get it. And thank you. I, I just, I, even if there is a firewall, 
you still are using your personal device for sensitive communications. You are. You just are. I've worked in the government. I worked in the city council, which is nothing like working as, you know, as the Speaker of the House. But I used my personal device all the time to do city council work. And so did the city council person that I worked with. And so did every other city council member that I interacted with. I have never worked in Congress, but I've worked on a lot of congressional campaigns. And every single member of Congress that whose campaign that I worked for or against, they used their personal devices to have sensitive conversations. They did. And should they not have? Probably not. Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State. She used personal emails and a personal server for government business. Uh, Bill de Blasio, same thing, when he was mayor. This goes on all the time. You can't help it. You get all sorts of sensitive information to uh, your text messages on your personal phone, to your private email addresses. Sometimes if there's something very sensitive, I got news for you. People in government go out of their way to send it to your personal number and your personal email because they don't want anybody else in the government looking at it. So these apps do have that access. They do. So uh, I uh, respectfully disagree with that. You know, I, I just I'm amazed at the faith that some people put into the ability of the government to safeguard all this information. All right. Everybody that's holding, we will get to you. But Noam Layden is here. Let's chat with him first. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Immortal music of the village people singing YMCA, a birthday bumper music selection by Richard Luthman, who is celebrating his birthday today. Uh, uh, But uh, somebody that is a rabid fan of the village people and this song in particular is also someone that has a stellar nose for news. None other than... Stand by for the other side of Midnight's News. From New York City, the other side of Midnight and its affiliated stations present national and international news with Frank Morano and news director Noam Layden. Their summary of the world news and personal comments. Get the rest of the story. Well, Noam, I must say I am thrilled that we did not lose you to becoming USA Today's uh, first full-time Taylor Swift reporter. Hopefully, we <laughs> won't lose you to being the second full-time Taylor Swift reporter either. I'm sorry to hear that that position's filled. I yeah. might have, I might have uh, you know, f- uh, you know, put in a resume for that. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> what, what's happening in non-Taylor Swift? You news? know, uh, 
This is uh, amazing to me, Frank, is getting a meal through a car window is bigger than it has ever been. Now, some of it was pushed on by the pandemic. People were afraid to go into restaurants. But drive-through traffic at restaurants, fast food restaurants, and regular ones for that matter, rose 30% from 2019 to 2022. And Everybody in the food industry is watching this, and there's so many different sides to this story, Frank. Uh, As momentum builds, the $113 billion fast food industry is leaning into this in a big way. You may have seen this even in your own neighborhood. Uh, Taco Bell, Chick-fil-A, Popeye's, executives at those three restaurants say they have now closed down tables inside to make their delivery service and their window service bigger. Wow. And so you can't even sit down in many fast food restaurants right. across the country today. Right, that I today. have seen, actually. And uh, it's on purpose because what they found is that people do want to get their food through their window. Why? Okay, bunch of reasons. One of them, I found this interesting. So many people picked up a pandemic pooch during the uh, you know w- during the sure. whole days of COVID. Right. That uh, one of the reasons people have given that they don't want to walk into a restaurant anymore and take it back home is they don't want to leave their pet at home. And uh, okay, I get that. I get that. I wouldn't have thought of that, but I guess that makes sense. I don't know. You think a two-hour meal out away from the house might be a good thing? Might be healthy for the family. The other thing is maybe the more frightening part of these surveys that have been done by these fast food restaurants and why they're making so much money through the window. In fact, so much so that they're creating extra lanes. The people that they're hiring at fast food restaurants, they're not doing customer service face-to-face. They're teaching them customer service through the intercom that you talk to when you pull up. And why? Well, the biggest thing is not the pets. It's not the pandemic. It is that this next generation that is buying fast food, they do not want to have interaction with strangers. That's what these fast food restaurants see. They do not want to talk to anybody if they don't have to. That's part of the reason they don't want to go into a restaurant, sit down, have to talk to a waitress in a sit-down restaurant. That's why sit-down restaurants are having a rough time. And uh, the fast food people have picked up on this and they say, okay – How can we make this so you have almost no interaction with strangers? So now they're testing AI, and it's working. And so uh, it'll be an AI voice that's coming out, a robotic voice that comes out, but it'll sound like a human when you pull up to these fast food restaurants. Uh, They'll recognize your voice, by the way, if you're a regular customer, and ask you, hey, is it the usual? And uh, they'll recommend, they'll try to upsell you other items. So they'll say, hey, last time we saw that you got a Coke, did you know that we now sell frozen Cokes? Okay, so now not only are you not talking to a person, you'll be talking to essentially a robot. And when you go up to the window, the only interaction will be is handing over that bag of food. That's what they're working towards. So they'll recognize your voice. They'll have your information of what you like to order already. They'll have your billing information, your credit cards. You don't need to show that. So it'll be the most minimal interaction you could possibly have at that fast food window. That's what we're going towards. You know, it is interesting because I have noticed this societal change, and I I think it maybe applies to Anybody under the age of 40, they prefer to use an app to order their food rather than actually call a restaurant or something along those lines. But I'm also thinking back to the days of the the auto map, uh, Horn and Hardit, where 
you basically would put in a few coins and you'd be able to get your right. food that way. So maybe it, it, this brave new world isn't so new. Maybe people have always wanted the convenience of uh, getting food quickly without having a lot of chit chat. Yeah, I don't. I th- I think I don't know. I don't look at it as hopefully as you do. I think the fact that people don't want to talk to each other is not a great sign for uh, mankind. Yeah, That's just my take. Yeah, on I it. mean, I hope, does that mean we have to find a new profession? Maybe we could be trained to talk to. <laughs> I'm one of these loudspeakers at the drive-thru. Yeah, that might be the next gig for us. I've been watching, uh, Frank, these two women for a long time who are conjoined twins. They live up in Connecticut. Don't let Mike Johnson's uh, software find out about that, Uh, believe me. Lupita and Carmen Andrade. Um, have been opening up about their lives together on YouTube. They have a huge following, and they just talk about what it's like to be conjoined. And here's a little bit of what you listen here if you go to their YouTube channel today. We're basically connected at the torso, mm-hmm. and we uh, share a pelvis, okay. uh, stuff like what? that. Uh-huh. We have two separate hearts. We uh-huh. don't share a brain, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> reproductive system, basically the same. Digestive system, we have two separate stomachs, but connects into basically one reproductive, uh, digestive system, excuse mm-hmm. me. We have one leg each, so it took a long time to learn how to coordinate walking. Yeah. Now, so they are um, at, they're 24 now. And uh, one of them wanted to go to college, and the other didn't. But oh, you can imagine that doesn't like really matter. Sounds like a Saturday Night Live skit. It does. But uh, I find it all really fascinating that they're so open about what it is life to be like to be conjoined at the pelvis. They were born in Mexico. They grew up in Connecticut. Of course, the biggest question that they're always asked is, why didn't you have surgery to separate them? But they said at the time when they could have done it, it would have potentially been fatal for one of them. So the parents opted not to do that. So one's in college now. The the other one's not, but essentially is in college. Uh, One of them, this is the more interesting part, has a boyfriend. Oh, my. And his name is Daniel. And uh, here they talk about what they like to do on the weekends when they're not in school or working. Usually just, like, we go into his state and we, like, look around, like, little small towns. For hindsight, she's in Connecticut. I'm in New York, bada bing, bada boom. But we only live like 40 minutes away. Yeah, so it's not that big of a deal. But just explore some of those small, like, you know, little quirky towns around, like, upstate New York. Yeah, so, uh, you know, when Carmen's out on her date, Lupita's there as well. And uh, when it comes to clothing... Uh, they have to have it specially tailored. You know, so many questions are answered on this YouTube channel, and it's made them, you know, essentially kind of. How did famous. you find this? I, I, I'm looking at these two now. Where, where did you Where did you find this? It sounds like I uh, have fiction almost. Uh, no, it's not. I have been yeah. following them for I don't know, a couple years now. I'd, someone had alerted me to them, and we did an interview with them. Maybe I don't know. It was about oh, a year really? and a half ago. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm going to uh, try and talk to them as well. Uh, this is really. Interesting to watch. So I'm looking at a clip now, and the, and the clip that I'm seeing, they I, I know they mentioned they only have one leg, but do, I see that they're sitting down. Are they always sitting down? Are they able to just stand? No, they each one has they they have two legs, so, oh. but each the brain their brains uh, each one of them has to use their legs. So in other words, they had to learn to walk together. So oh, uh, because my. they don't they don't share a brain, they have separate brains. But you can imagine learning to walk. But now this is sort of second nature because they're 24 years old. It was a long time ago that they learned to walk. Um, 
But yeah, I think I'm sure they would come on with you and chat with you on the overnight about what it's like. Um, I Again, the videos I find endlessly fascinating for a whole bunch of different reasons. And just the fact that one has a boyfriend and one doesn't, you know, you're sort of like, oh, God. Yeah, I mean, you think about uh, everything. It's just uh, everything becomes a, a group decision. Uh, that is that is wild. My yeah. goodness. Yeah. Um, I'm going to say goodbye to you early just because it is election day. And as you might guess, I have so many races to cover and a news hour to do coming up in 15 minutes from now. What was the most shocking uh, or interesting result that happened yesterday? Just give us a preview. Uh, Virginia was interesting because there was a thought that the legislature there would go uh, red Republican with Glenn uh, Youngkin, but it did not. The Democrats held on in New Jersey. The same thing. There was a thought maybe Republicans could take a couple seats away in the legislature. Whether it means anything for 2024, I say absolutely not. I always believe all politics are local. Yeah, well, and uh, and except national politics, which might be national. Yeah. Right? Noam Layden, thank you as always. And now you know the rest of the story. All right. 800-848-9222. A couple of people have been very patiently holding. Let me try and get to some folks before we do 15 seconds of fame. Eric's in Manhattan. Hi, Eric. Uh, hey, Frank. Oh, sorry, my speaker. Um, I, I, as I was telling the screener, I don't take sides in any foreign entanglements. And I mean, basically, this is what this is: it's two foreign countries. But that being said, I mean, Anne Frank, I, I, I couldn't believe my ears. Like, I had to, like, did he really say Anne? They're removing Anne Frank's name from school, and that's like really, I mean, really outrageous. It's just, uh, it, it tells me these people have no floor. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm still, I'm still shocked. And, and someone just got, I think, kicked out of a game because they had a, uh, an American flag and an Israeli flag on their, on their box or whatever. And you know that would not have happened if, if it was a Palestinian flag, but it's just uh, it's getting crazy. I mean, <laughs> tell me, tell me, I'm not, I'm not, tell me, I'm, I'm making some sense here. I mean, is it just me? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think the Anne Frank thing is is very is is ridiculous. As far as the George Norcross incident, look, I mean, it says you're not allowed to have banners that aren't related to the event. And if they asked him to take down the banner and he refused, maybe things escalated from there. But I tend to agree with you that if it was another type of banner, they wouldn't have given him as hard of a time. Not going to go so far as to say the Palestinian banner, but certainly the NFL has very much embraced the uh, imagery of Ukrainian flags. They very much embraced the symbolism and the imagery of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I think if it was one of those, I don't think he would have been asked to take it down. 800-848-9222. Joe in the Queens. Hi, Joe. Yeah, Frank, I want to comment on the last hour, too, if you give me a, a couple of seconds. But on Johnson, there's two points I want to make. One is it's very tacky to publicly assume that other people can't open up the web without looking at pornography, number one. And I think is that people, what I'm doing or what Mike Johnson is doing? No, no, no. That's that's what Johnson is uh -huh. doing. You know, he, he by by saying that he's assuming he can't if he can't open up the internet without look, looking at pornography. That's his problem. Don't assume other people have the same problem. That's number one. And number two, I I find it tacky for a male to male thing with looking at pornography. If someone has a pornography uh, problem with pornography, they should talk to a woman confident only. That's my opinion. Uh, um, the last hour. Uh, Oh, 
So look at LifeSightNews.com. There's an article about what's going on in Brazil where the civil says that uh, uh, kids between six months and five had to take the COVID shot this coming year or else they could. the parents could be jailed and the kids could be taken by the state. Very, very alarming. But uh, with Anne Frank... I think that's a whitewashing uh, of the whole issue, uh, where, say, the Helen Keller School for the Blind in Jerusalem, which is a famous school, if you deleted Helen Keller, it wouldn't be a whitewashing, it would be a dilution. But I, I think to remove Anne Frank is whitewashing the whole issue, Frank. Thank you, Joe. 800-848-9222. Uh, Matt Blaze is here. Matt Blaze, how are you feeling? We didn't check in with you today. How's your recovery coming along? I am much better. Sounding the same, but feeling better. You feel better? Yes. That's good. This voice will last for a little while. Now, when uh, last I saw you, and uh, uh, Christian is here as well, thank you for Christian sitting in the Kenneth chair the last couple of days. When last I saw you was yes. yesterday, and um, you know, I, I asked you know, what was going on with the podcast, and he said, yes. oh, you know, Christian's doing it, and he said, I'm staying to make sure it gets done properly. I said, wow, this is, guy is a trooper. <laughs> he's staying even though he's sick, making sure things are done thoroughly and uh, properly. How is it then that 40 minutes of yesterday's podcast got cut out and that other portions were repeated? You misunderstood. I said I was staying to make sure something else that we do was done correctly. And that that's what I was talking about. The FTP was done oh, correctly. I see. I that's see. what I meant. I see. So the podcast, again, for today, we're, we're on our own. We don't know what's no, going to happen with today, that. I am absolutely 100%, as you're hearing me say this, here's the record. All right. It is on record. On record. Making sure the podcast will be stellar. All right. And do we have any idea when yesterday's podcast issues might be corrected? I will say at about 7 to 8 a.m. in the morning. Eastern. Yes. Today. Okay. All right. Well, that's a, there you have it, folks. Now, now you know. All right, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame in a moment. If you want to call in for 15 seconds, you can go ahead and do so. 800-848-9222. You can also email me, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. If you want to participate in the Facebook group, go to facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. Want to wish a happy birthday to my friend Phil DePaul who's celebrating his birthday today, as is my friend uh, Jeremy Goldman, who's a great guy, and uh, all great guys. And uh, hopefully if you're celebrating a birthday today, too, you're doing something fun. All right, uh, we'll do 15 seconds of fame straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. The sun goes down. You 
The Other Side of Midnight by Stevie G and the Uninvited Co-Conspirators. A terrific song, if ever there was one. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame in a moment where we give you an opportunity to call in and say whatever you like for 15 seconds. Uh, But I want to congratulate... Uh, a lot of our friends that won elections yesterday, uh, Councilmember Joe Borelli, who obviously is a close friend, who uh, was elected to his final term in the city council, as well as uh, City Councilmember Bob Holden, elected to his final term in the city council. And on the New Jersey side of things, uh, Assemblymember Robert Auth, uh, State Senator John Bramnick, uh, State Assemblymember Don Guardian, and uh, Atlantic City City Council Member Jesse Kurtz. So uh, congratulations to everybody that won elections. And I know this is not really a popular thing to say, but I actually give a lot of credit to everybody that runs for office and loses because I think actually those people are doing quite a public service as well. Tomorrow, we're going to have the guy that uh, discovered the Y2K bug here. And he is now warning about something very big that could be happening to all of our computers soon. And I'm sure that the uh, Mike Johnson monitoring app will save it. Also, uh, some other things that we're going to get into that uh, I think you're really going to get a kick out of tomorrow and our weekly conversation with Brian Kilmeade. Meanwhile, though, it's, if you want to be heard for 15 seconds, dial 800-848-9222 to be a part of... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Tom. Hello. Oh. Hello. Charles. Oh, yeah. Good morning. Chanting genocide from the river to the sea is a threat. And even if not a threat, just like you can't have a gun, even if you're allowed to carry a gun, you're not allowed to have it at a protest. When you have a mob chanting hate speech, should that be allowed? Is that allowed? Yes. E. Frank. Yes, uh, Frank. uh, Untenable and the book Unfulfilled. Uh, yes, I would just like to say I have a book. It's a text called The United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, the 1994 Catholic Catechism. Marriage is defined under Catholic Canaan Code as love between two... Alex! You sound like Sleepy Fried Onions. And someone was saying that they're going to try to assassinate Trump. They're not going to do it until the general election because they want him to be the Republican nominee. Now, if he wins the general election, they'll try to assassinate him. Trump need not be concerned until he wins the general election. Rusty. Yes. Yeah. Well, Como gets to be governor again, will he name the bridge after Scaramucci? Rocco. Good morning, Israel. We stand strong with you. Stand strong with you. Keep the fight up. Don't give up. And Noam is the news king of the world. His stories are more than interesting and informative. I love them. Love sitting friends in the morning. Keep it coming. Jeff. Yeah, I'm a MAGA Republican. I love Israel. I love the Jewish people. Netanyahu, Golda Meir, saved Israel, and Richard Nixon was the best friend of Israel ever of American presidents. Robert. Erasing history is a communist thing. 
Fight the commies in our country trying to take over us. Don't vote for Democrats. Thank you. Uh, 800-848-9222. Marie. Hi, everybody. I want everybody to have a good day, okay? And listen to your whole show today, Frank. Anyway, have a good day. Thank you, Marie. All right, that slams the lid on things for today. Uh, stay in touch with me on X or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Fan. if you want to see a picture of what that Halloween candy casserole looks like. And uh, a lot of the other great subjects that we've talked about today, they're all reflected on there. And uh, be sure to join the Facebook group as well. All right. Uh, if you didn't get an opportunity to get on the air today, hopefully we'll get to do that tomorrow. We have, uh, I think, three guests tomorrow, though, so those are always tough for phone-related shows, but all interesting, all interesting content, and I'll continue my conversation with Brian Kilmeade about his new book regarding Theodore Roosevelt and uh, Booker T. Washington. Looking forward to that. In the meantime, I'll, God willing, I'll see you tomorrow. Frank Morano, good day. Good day.